Coming to you live from the Sheffield offices of Darker Days Radio, this is Darker Days Radio episode number 64. I'm, of course, one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by Chris. How's it going, Chris? It's uh, pretty good. It's gloomy here in the uh, City of Steel. Um, yeah, but good. Back in the UK. Awesome. So, a good thing. And we've also got our werewolf correspondent, who's going to be branching out a little bit this episode. We got Matt. How's it going, Matt? It's going all right. We, it was nice and gloomy here in North Dakota as well, but now the sun's out, which means it's now just humid. Yeah, it's like it's humid here as well, I think. So, yeah, it's time of year anyway. Um, what's everyone been up to hobby-wise? I mean, when was the last time we recorded? Like, you did a Darkling recently, so that doesn't count because it's not a proper show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, when did we last record Darker Days? It must have been just before I moved. Uh, I think it was actually back in February that we recorded okay. the April Fool's episode. Ah, yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Which wasn't um, on this feed, was it? No, it wasn't. Yeah. We appeared on uh, Midnight Express. Yeah, so Chris, Chris, you, you moved to a different country. How's it going? How's the gaming been? I've moved back to the UK. I'm back in the north of England, this time on the other side of the Pennines, so uh, the northeast rather than the northwest. Uh, so I'm in South Yorkshire, uh, and it's pretty good. So gaming-wise, I um, there's a very good gaming store nearby called uh, The Outpost and they have plenty of gaming space and uh, what what else is interesting to say about it they stock pretty much everything uh, and I went along to the Guild Ball demo day so Guild Ball is a uh, war game created and also um, I believe it's created by and also play tested by a number of people locally who are like War Machine Hordes World Champions. Like, there's a really strong team here. Whoa. And that shows through in the extremely uh, tight rule system of Guild Ball. Uh, and it was a blast. So I'm planning on, I guess, uh, later this evening or um, the rest of this week is to review the PDF for Guild Ball, which is uh, free to download. And um, basically Guild Ball is, think, fantasy miniatures football. But rather than American football, it's medieval mob football, so soccer, essentially. Uh, and it is non-hex, non-grid-based. It's actually, you know, normal skirmish-style wargaming. And it's great. Hmm. Sounds pretty cool. Matt, what have you been doing lately? Not much. Just working through my video game backlog, mostly, which is getting worse now that the Steam Summer Sale has started up. <laughs> oh, pause the show. I need to go check that out. There's nothing good, and it'll be there in another four hours. Don't worry about it. Okay. We're going to do a four-hour episode? Sweet. All right, folks, get ready. <laughs> so, so Matt, you actually installed uh, Secret World, and we were playing that a little bit uh, during our mm -hmm. Darker Days hiatus. Uh, what do you think about that game? I think it's interesting. Um, I don't quite like how the difficulty ramps up. Because mm, yeah. it seems like once you get to a certain point, things get much, much harder. And then eventually you just completely bypass that difficulty. Like, there's no in-between between you barely make it through this fight and haha you just murdered everyone in a 10 mile radius 
Yeah, that sounds about... That sounds like a big problem with it. Um, because I would find that difficulty rating between zones would suddenly... It, it never felt like a... It never felt, felt like a granular, progressive, like, ramping up of difficulty. It just, like, you just hit a brick wall and then you were just like, screw it, let's go back and grind in the earlier zone. And that's another thing I noticed is that um, the way that the quests are set up is kind of annoying because hmm. you can you you get your main quest a then you can get a story quest one of them and then you can get three sub quests yeah and even if you have a bunch of there's a bunch of main quests that all take place in the same area you have to do them one at a time and you have no way of telling precisely what a story quest is going to require of you hmm. before you pick it up. So you can't tell if it's going to be like, oh, no, this one isn't actually here. It's over like in the other side of the zone. You wanted that one you just got rid of to, to pick this one up. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that kind of jabs with my experience. But the puzzles. The puzzles, dude. Some of the puzzles are nasty and quite hard. Um, like, the one which there was the Morse code one, which was just far too quick, and I just could never. Yeah, it was way too fast to figure out. Yeah, I know. Like that was actually one that me and Mike were doing, and I had just looked it up online, and Mike was like, "No, no, no! I want to do this legit." And I just kind of sat there for three minutes, and then he's <laughs> like, "Okay, no, just tell me what it is. I can't hear it. It's too fast." Yeah, yeah. Um, in the Egyptian zone, the deep, the decrypting the satellite signals is a good one because it relies on um, you know either your decryption in hexadecimal or you're de doing a decryption in uh, Axie or you're doing a decryption in some other thing and that was really a good one I felt like you know that was pretty cool um, I actually think one of the best puzzles uh, I've only played all the way up to um, the Transylvania zone yeah, but, I'm in the second zone of Egypt, and that's kind of where I lost the thread of wanting to play the game. Okay, well, I think we'll have to sort out something where um, I'll have to sort out the laptop, because um, now I've got my new computer at work, uh, I can have my laptop set up here and I'll tidy things up. Um, but I'll get it set up so we can dive back in, and like, we'll have to get James on, because he's like well ahead of me, and so, you know, mm. hardcore. Um, but in the... I think the best puzzle comes in Kingsmouth. Is that it? Yeah. That's the and, first zone. Yeah. And the one with the, the biblical um, puzzle is, I think, was pretty solid. And following through all those things was pretty good. So, um, yeah, the puzzles. It just makes you feel like you can play the game as a group of players. Like, you can be, like, two or three of you. And while you're killing zombies or mummies or whatever the hell it is, you can be discussing the puzzle that you're about that you're trying to solve, and or or something like that, and that makes it feel like you're hunters. And I think it adds to the making it feel like it's a role play game. Well, no, I mean I like the aesthetic of the game a lot. Yeah. Like, I mean, even if some of the... Like, some of the puzzles seemed very obtuse and very 
moon logic-y. Like, there's one in the second zone where it's all about looking up ISBNs, which means you have to find a specific printing of a specific book and <laughs> then use its ISBN to solve the rest of the puzzle. And if you get the wrong book, it's sending you in the complete wrong direction. Yeah. Hmm. Like, like that would just kind of was like, what, what the hell? Why would they do this? But like everything else about the game is great. Like the quests at um, the Innsmouth University, hmm. like the voice acting on those characters is fantastic. The um, I also really like is, um, I mean, I don't know which faction you joined up with. Templar. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, so I went with the uh, Illuminati. They're complete douche. They're complete hipster douchebags, but I kind of like them because it kind of gets across the kind of like um, that level of arrogance I even imagine that the technocracy would have in Mage the Ascension. No, the the Templars are actually kind of hilarious because um, the main quest giver you get is this like. 75 year old lady who doesn't even understand who doesn't really understand how cell phones work oh right okay and so so you'll get quest you'll get you know phone calls from her and it's like all right the tech boys say that i press this button to talk to you and this button to hang <laughs> oh um actually it just reminded me there's a really good quest in the third zone of of kingsmouth which is kind of like a summoning circle, but it's it's good to cut. It's a good one to look forward to. Really, that one's pretty well. Oh, is that the one with the uh, Norse lore? Uh, I think so. Yes. Yeah, where you're talking to uh, uh, Hugen and Mugen. Yeah. No, actually, it's a different one. Then it's one that takes place in the uh, the motel. Oh, that one. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. like I said, there's the game has its own very interesting lore, and I do enjoy and I do enjoy looking through that. I just didn't like how uh, how the difficulty ramped up because, yeah. like, if you stuck around in the zone and did all of the quests and did all of the dungeon quests, you could come out either being way too powerful or not powerful enough, mm. yeah. and there was really no way to tell which it would be. And the primary and the primary means of advancement, at least to start, is getting better skills and better skills that work together. Yeah. But then it become but then it relies entirely on gear. And like there's very little survivability outside of the classes that can heal, but mm. healing power is a completely different stat than everything else. Mm. So it's that kind of incongruity doesn't really mesh in my mind as because I'm coming from World of Warcraft, where they did away with that, you know, four expansions ago. Uh, I was going to say, what's the other thing? Oh, um, I would say one of the, the the most, I think one of my favorite things, obviously seeing it rendered and like how they did it. The entire section, which is London, is awesome. Especially with like kind of that Neverwhere kind of feel to it, and the the market area. Well, there's a. I'm not sure if you guys do it as the Templars, but there's you. You interact with um, the uh, London Police Department as a Templar. Oh, right, cool. And you and you have to help them with a couple of investigations between um, 
between King's Kingsmith and uh, Egypt, uh, and they're hmm. just like, this is completely outside of our wheelhouse. We don't know what the hell is going on. You're the Templars, so we'll just secure the scene. You go figure it out. I have to go convince a whole bunch of police officers not to puke. Hmm. No, I think overall as an MMO, it's the only MMO that I've actually uh, is ever kind of grabbed my interest enough to want me to play it for a significant amount of time. But uh -huh. I would say because of the puzzles in it and the setting, I think it does lend itself better for like multiplayer, a lot more to multiplayer, as in because there's so much stuff that you can discuss, be it the puzzles or, or the lore. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's great. We need to play more, <laughs> basically. Definitely. Definitely. Anyway, <laughs> getting back to the world of darkness. Yeah, so I've been uh, doing a little bit of gaming, uh, playing some Dungeons & Dragons, and uh, unfortunately my Exalted game is on hold because there's a uh, pipe explosion in my dining room. So hopefully they'll get fixed up soon and uh, get back to uh, running Exalted here. And uh, I've also been on uh, the podcast History Lessons with Caleb, Mike, and Terry, which is definitely mm -hmm, a good that time. That was pretty great, that one. Yep, yep. So we're going to be helping out with that a little bit this summer. Should be good. Cool. So uh, I think that's it for uh, kind of the introduction segment. So let's uh, hop on over to World of Darkness News. <laughs> All right, sweet. So uh, the folks over at Onyx Path have been pretty busy lately uh, with a number of new products that have come out since our last full episode. Uh, so in particular, uh, Sothis Ascends for uh, Mummy the Cursed has come out. I've not read it, but uh, I believe that is the final book to uh, complete the chronicle arc for uh, Mummy the Curse. So it's definitely something people should check out. And in addition to that, uh, we also have Werewolf the Forsaken 2nd Edition, which uh, is pretty exciting, and uh, I don't want to talk about it too much, because we're going to have a segment about it uh, today on the show. So that's uh, something to check out as well. Uh, for April Fools, of course, we got uh, World of Darkness Gothic Icons, which is a uh, uh, series of uh, basically NPCs developed for uh, World of Darkness 2nd Edition, uh, which are Victorian protagonists, antagonists, and the like. And also, the other thing that came out was the Fallen World Chronicle Anthology for Mage the Awakening 2nd Edition. So if you want some more fiction for Mage the, Ascension, or Mage the Awakening, boom, there you go. Sweet. Uh, <clears throat> just going down the list, uh, in addition to that, uh, we do know that uh, there is going to be a, uh, a freebie at Gen Con, which is the Cavaliers of Mars Quick Start. So uh, if you're interested in that uh, game setting being developed by uh, Rose Bailey, definitely see if you can pick that up if you're at Gen Con or look for a PDF in the future. And uh, the other big thing from Onyx Path, of course, is Sardonyx, which is their new game system, basically. Their new uh, dice mechanics that are going to be used for both Trinity and Scion. So uh, have you guys taken a look at that? Uh, what do you think? I've not taken a look at it yet. Um, what with all the moving, uh, moving to Sheffield as well. So, um, but 
so far from you guys, I've heard good things. So what can you tell me about it? Okay, so it's kind of like the storyteller system where you have an attribute and a skill. Add those together, that's how many dice you roll in your dice pool. The reason why it's interesting and different and very well-designed for Scion and uh, for Trinity is that it allows different power levels using that same game mechanic without just adding in buckets and buckets of dice. Uh, So the way it works is that uh, different power levels can have uh, successes scored on different difficulties. So maybe a godlike being would get successes on a six or higher, as opposed to a mortal who gets it on an eight or higher. Hmm. So that's just a simple way to uh, kind of increase the number of successes. Uh, in addition to that, there's some pretty cool uh, story mechanics thrown in where if you have uh, botches and fails, you can add that can add these uh, additional dice to a common black pool, uh, which players can use to uh, dramatic effect. Uh, if they uh, are, are doing a pretty tough or interesting action, they can grab additional dice for their dice pool and uh, use those. Finally, the really cool thing about the system is that they just got rid of auto successes. Kind of. Okay. Um, so the way it works now is that there are these enhancement successes. So if you roll with your dice pool and you get zero successes, you get none of your enhancement successes. But if you get at least one or more successes, then any uh, additional enhancement successes trigger. So, for example, you know in Vampire the Masquerade, Potence just gives you extra successes originally. Yeah, okay. Now, it only gives you those extra successes if you actually... Uh, have a successful role so that kind of helps with uh you know particular things like of course uh super strength uh, super agility things like that and uh it's probably actually a good fix for a lot of things in exalted as well so that'll be something to look into well it i think from what you say i'm wondering how they'll handle a rate or arete, however that's pronounced, from Scion, which is basically just throw gigantic pools of dice at the problem and hope it goes away. Uh, it seems like from the way that they're designing the system, that's not going to be the case. Usually, you do not get to add, excuse me, any dice to your to your pool. Um, there's only like enhancement successes and that sort of thing. Uh, the only way you can kind of circumvent that is with uh, uh, using your your black pool, or your red pool, for a dramatic effect. Hmm. I think the interesting thing with allowing that change of success level is that it also means it allows characters at a particular level, so be them, say, humans, who then by some means have access to some powerful weapon. That weapon's power is easily represented by the fact that it just has a better success level that it must meet it doesn't change say the dice ball that you're rolling but it certainly changes how easily it gets successes to cause damage so and stuff like that so that's pretty wicked that just to do it's it's a very it's simple enough and it deals with scale differences yep definitely i would also say the the other thing with scale differences then is that say if something is like monumentally powerful let's just say uh, let's go with, say, like a mecha of some gigantic construct, right? Versus a superhuman who's still human sized. You can mostly, you know, you can mostly deal with the differences in power levels and scale there simply by going, well, normally 
the superhuman is obviously rolling on sixes or more to get a success. But the only way to properly represent the mecha at that level is rather than making the mecha roll on, say, fives or more, is you just rescale the relative success levels against each other for their for their actions when they're opposed. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you just kind of, like, go, well, the superhuman, when he fights the mecha to do any damage, he's actually back to rolling eights or more. But that... But that just, you know, it, it makes it manageable. It still makes it manageable with the dice pools you have. Yep. I would hope that's something you could, that may be, may be in there. Yeah, so overall, I mean, we've only kind of seen just a basic, simple proof uh, uh, for, the, for the basic system. But it seems pretty cool. And uh, I'm excited to see some more. Wicked. Cool. Yep. And then in the uh, Kickstarter verse, uh, if I can remember correctly, we've had three Kickstarters either complete or are currently ongoing since our last episode. Those being uh, the Dark Eras Kickstarter, uh, which is a pretty cool one for a New World of Darkness, which uh, is going to introduce, geez, at this point, something like 20 new historical settings uh, <laughs> yeah, for use. Yeah, Yeah. But uh, a lot of them are really cool. And that was a fun one because uh, you got to vote on different... Uh, you got to vote in the settings that you wanted, basically. So that uh, gave uh, gave fans a lot of agency in the creation of a product. So that was uh, a good time. Uh, in addition to that, uh, there was the V20 Lore of the Clans uh, Kickstarter, which is basically like a new uh, giant clan book covering all 13 uh, Vampire the Masquerade clans. Uh, and that was a resounding success, and uh, seems like people are pretty pumped about that. And finally, currently ongoing is, of course... Beast the Primordial. Um, we're not going to talk about that too much because that's going to be a, an additional bonus segment at the end of the show. So uh, we'll cover that game then. Um, yeah, so I think that's um, that's all of Onyx Path news. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything else new products out that we've seen from anything else that's kind of fun? Uh, nope. Not really. I haven't been playing, really. uh, paying too much attention. Uh, I did purchase a copy of the fifth uh, edition D and D Player's Handbook. Oh, so that's okay. that's cool. That just came in the mail yesterday. Well, of course, actually, um, that came out, uh, and I picked up when I arrived back in the UK. Uh, was Iron Kingdoms Unleashed, which is the Iron Kingdoms uh, core book which essentially allows you to play as characters from the wilderness of Western Amoran. So you can play as gators, pigs, um, well, I say pigs, pharaoh, uh, troll kin and pygmy trolls and tharn, and you can be a member of the Circle of Orbros or the member of a troll creel or something else. Uh, it's a pretty huge book. There's loads of selling content in there, and... Um, in one of in the most recent No Quarter, they introduced rules to play as Legion of Everblight uh, Warlocks, and and also rules for Legion of Everblight, Everblight War Beasts in there. And the next book, Mike, is the Scorn Empire. So we get a book totally dedicated to playing as the Scorn. That'll be really cool. <laughs> yeah, it should be I think good. the next. Um... The next no quarter is going to have more Legion of Everblight rules because when I was looking through it, one of these sections said something about you can take a blighted sorcerer spell. Oh, and right, there, yeah. there is no such thing as a blighted sorcerer. 
So yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, the amount of content they've put out there is just ridiculous. Um, what more is there to say about it? It look, it's. I can't wait to run some more Iron Kingdoms. Uh, yeah. Nice. All right, cool. So I think that's it for uh, World of Darkness and uh, gaming news. So with that, let's go talk about the classic World of Darkness. Classic World of Darkness. All right. So. Uh, Speaking of, speaking of, you know, interesting games, classic world of darkness, controversial books, perhaps, we're going to talk a little bit about Hunter uh, the Reckoning, specifically Cree Book Wayward and the NPCs within. So, actually, originally when I was proposing this, uh, I was I was talking to Matt and I was like, hey, why don't I talk about those, uh, you know, NPC character sheets that are usually in the uh, the back of books? Because I always kind of skip those over. I thought it'd be cool to. Uh, just read them and talk about them a little bit. But then I started to look at them, and they were pretty weak. I really didn't have any good ideas uh, jumping out of the page at me uh, as I read through those. So I think we'll just kind of cover the uh, more interesting uh, developed uh, signature characters for the Wayward Creed that are provided in the book. So before we get started, let's just talk real quick about uh, Waywards themselves. Uh, they were a form of the Imbued from uh, Hunter the Reckoning. Uh, they're one of the lost creeds. So what happened with them was that uh, originally this creed, this uh, kind of occupation, if you will, uh, of the Imbued Hunters was going to be for the commanders and the leaders in the uh, kind of intended battle that the messengers were creating. Now, these messengers are alien, unknowable beings uh, so when they went to directly upload the, their, their battle plans, basically, into the minds of the Waywards, uh, it kind of broke these individuals, um, leading to insanity, derangements, and uh, generally just the constant flow of information is in many ways too much for them to handle. As such, uh, the messengers kind of noticed that all of these imbuings were pretty much going wrong and not, uh, not working as intended. Uh, creating these very militant individuals, which really wasn't the case. There were supposed to be more leaders and strategists, if you will. Um, so the messengers no longer do this imbuing, typically. And uh, really, this creed is meant to be more of an NPC class uh, and not really uh, to be protagonists in a story. So as I mentioned, this uh, creed book had three sample characters provided. Uh, and I'll just go through them. I wasn't super excited about them. Uh, there's a uh, a gun nut uh, who's who's a total babe in the picture, and uh, she's a, an amazing sniper. Not not super exciting. Uh, the next one was definitely just Patrick Bateman of American Psycho, but as a Hunter of the Reckoning character. Uh, so a uh, a corporate killer, I believe, was the uh, NPC name, and uh, you know just uh, taking out monsters that are in his office. And the final one was a high school bully. Eh, not, not the most inspiring, but uh, definitely something you could use uh, if you need a quick character. But, guys, let's go on to uh, some of the more notable NPCs in the book, because two of these characters, uh, specifically, are, are very well known throughout uh, the Hunter of the Reckoning fiction, which the Hunter of the Reckoning line was at least, like, 65 to 75% fiction. So, so there are three really cool ones that I, I found were uh, presented in here. Uh, specifically, one of them was uh, Peleus, who, uh, as the description describes, 
is a uh, half First Nations, half white person born into a uh, Southern KKK family. Uh, he was, of course, indoctrinated into uh, the Klan lifestyle. But uh, as the years went on, uh, his family and uh, his friends, I'll say that in, uh, in quotation marks, uh, began to notice that he, he didn't look like everyone else uh, and looked fairly impure. Uh, he was kicked out of uh, his family, basically, for uh, you know the good of everybody else, um, and kind of started to wander around, went to Vietnam as a photographer, and uh, saw the many horrors going over there, going on over there uh, during the Vietnam War. After he came back, uh, he was pretty devastated about the loss of his his general community and support structure. Uh, putzed around for a while until eventually uh, he was imbued. Uh, it all happened very fast. He was just driving along, uh, and then saw someone that was quite dead on the side of the road, uh, but still standing, still perhaps breathing. And he just ran this individual over with his car twice. And that was the uh, start of his adventures. Uh, he's a highly militant uh, wayward that uh, can be used for some interesting effects in uh, different World of Darkness games, not just Hunter the Reckoning. Um, he can uh, really highlight uh, some of the themes of how you can't choose your family in uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse. And uh, in addition, could uh, be a very interesting antagonist hunter or even slasher in uh, Hunter the Vigil. Mm, yeah. So moving on from there, uh, the book also provides some information on God 45, whose real name is Joshua Matthews. Uh, now, Joshua originally worked in a hospital uh, analyzing biopsies and cancerous tissue, juggling his family life. But then one day while he was at work, he got the call, although he didn't see anything immediately. Uh, and it's interesting to point out that no one knows what the message he received was. It doesn't tell you in the fiction, nor uh, does he reveal it uh, anywhere else. Uh, later that night, he went home for dinner. And uh, just the second he walked in, when he saw his son, his son was wrong. Uh, the teenager was bruised, blotched, and uh, clearly was not right. Uh, this is, of course, when uh, his, his true imbuing occurred, and uh, his mind was flooded with uh, information from the, uh, from the messengers, and he was just simply overwhelmed. Uh, and in a uh, maniacal rage, uh, he killed his son, and his wife, uh, when she tried to defend the teenager. Of course, he immediately burned down his house and then fled the scene. Uh, God45 is an interesting character uh, because he interacts a lot more with uh, the imbued society overall and uh, really has this uh, interesting point that uh, he tries to justify what he's doing because he feels that he uh, the monsters around him are very cancerous, and he's not too concerned about uh, removing some of the uh, uh, the good flesh around it just to take out the monster itself, uh, indicating that he might hurt innocent people. Which, I will add, is uh, very different in the Hunter the Reckoning video game, where God45 <laughs> says something along the lines of, this guy's about to hurt some innocent people, we've got to stop him. <laughs> Which is definitely not his character at all. But then again, those video games are a little, uh, little janky. He would make a interesting uh, potential creator of Promethean. So uh, because mm. if he's like kind of like, if we take out the bit where he burns down the house, 
or at least he burns down the house to make it look like he's fled the scene and everything. You could imagine that maybe he tried to fix his son by cutting out the wrong bits and then replacing it with parts possibly from his wife, who obviously was unfortunately in the way, creating a new entity that has to come to terms with, um, with you know, the the people it's been made from. So that's my mm. initial impression of that. No, it's definitely a very good point. Uh, he also works very well uh, in contrast to vampires in many ways, since they're really leeches and parasites. Mm, yeah. And, uh, I mean, reading through this character, he, I was drawing a lot of illusions between him and the heroes of Beast uh, the Primordial, uh, where he's not really afraid of hurting innocent people just to uh, get at his enemy. He would work really well in in New World of Darkness as uh, if you take the idea of like someone from Second Sight who's able to see spirits he would work quite well as someone that some for whatever reason uh, is able to you know has taken it upon himself to hunt um, the why can't I think of the, the claimed so when someone is you know claimed by a spirit they become this kind of mishmash of flesh and and whatever the spirit represents made real uh that would work in the idea of cu cutting out something cancerous in that way and of course the uh, third interesting npc is of course christy mccalcom uh or sorry mccallum uh she was abused as a child and abused as an adult uh she has some military training and most notably uh the the hunt overwhelmed her and she had to leave her family and uh, the overall stress sort of uh, created these two separate personalities. But the, the kind of interesting twist to it is that they both, both personalities know that they're imbued. They realize what's going on, but they don't know about each other. And in fact, each of them has uh, formed their own sort of cell uh, of hunters, a separate one for each. Uh, one's a very calm, investigative cell, very reasonable. The other's quite uh, oppressive, authoritarian, and militant. Uh, and this character, I think, it's just a cool idea that uh, you have a hunter with these two separate cells and two separate personalities. Because usually, you know, the, the presentation of uh, multiple personalities is that you have one that's evil and then one that just mm -hmm. doesn't realize what's going on. But in this case, they kind of both know uh, what, they're, what they're doing and going on about. This is a cool character. Uh, of course, because I was reading Beast, I was thinking about the heroes. It could be very interesting that there is a, uh, a hero who has two different personalities and two very separate goals going on. Uh, perhaps each hero is hunting a different beast. Oh, uh, that would be wicked, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or, in fact, one is seeking to help beasts, and the other is, of course, hunting them. Yeah, I was going to say, obviously, um, because it's such a, a nice, balanced... Uh, kind of take on the whole um, multiple personality disorder uh, is that that's always a good and interesting one when you look at mage so uh, maybe each personality has access to slightly different powers um, and that works in that works well in every version of mage there is uh, yeah cool so there we go I mean that's pretty much it kind of a short segment here. Matt, do you have any opinions on uh, on the Wayward Creed or Hunter the Reckoning in general? Well, my only real experience with Hunter the Reckoning is the game on the PlayStation 2. 
So, I mean, there was a wayward in that game, but I never really played it played as him because the when I was playing through it, the game glitched out, so I had demand on twenty four seven, and I only hmm. wanted to play as the character that let me one shot things. Nice. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, sweet. Uh, I was gonna say the um. What was I going to say, actually? <laughs> there was something I mean, like, like, was... They were good video games, from what I understand. They were fairly decent um, gauntlet clones. But yeah. from what I understand about Hunter, they were very bad Hunter games. Hmm. I was going to say about like, the Wayward, because I know very little about... Uh, I don't know loads about Hunter, the uh, the Reckoning. Um, the Wayward, with the whole being overloaded by information, that's kind of interesting with regard to, say, taking that concept and perhaps uh, with, uh, the God, uh, with the God Machine Chronicles and when, say, an angel, like, over overwhelms uh, a human for whatever reason with this information from the God Machine. Indeed, yeah, it's quite similar. And how it can then it affect some... Actually, I'll tell you what the, these guys sound like. They sound like stigmatics for demon. So they're people that have yep. been touched by the god machine. Well, the idea, from what I understand, is that they are one of the vision creeds, which Correct. means that they can see the world how it really is. It's just that, as opposed to the visionaries who see a world and want to change it, or they see a world and want to destroy all the evil that they see. Yeah. Cool. So I think that's it for the waywards. And uh, let's just hop on over to the secret frequency. It's under the stairs. <laughs> so um, this fits in quite well with what we'll be discussing a bit later. And this secret frequency concerns the watery graveyard uh, just south, uh, south east of New Zealand, uh, or more east of New Zealand, in the Pacific Ocean, which is home, which is the resting place of 161 sunken spacecraft. So this remote stretch of the Pacific, uh, Pacific Ocean, southeast of New Zealand, is where many uh, broken remains of space stations and robotic freighters and so forth uh, litter the ocean floor in an area uh, an area that is four kilometers below the waves. Essentially, uh, this place is identified by the World Space Agencies as an ideal place to bring down uh, spacecraft that are returning to Earth, so that if they're breaking up and so forth, they can they can fall there without injuring humans or causing any causing any damage on any islands. The region is also near a point called uh, near a location called Point Nemo, the point in the ocean that is furthest away from any landmass. Uh, and it's named for Captain Nemo of Jules Verne's classic 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. What else is interesting about this? Uh, this point also kind of has the feeling of kind of the that it's far away from any landmass, it's uh, isolated. It has that kind of Cthulhu myth uh, mythos feel of uh, the nightmare sunken city of Rely. And. This is the full list of what is there. There's 145 uh, of Russians uh, of Russia's Progress Autonomous Resupply ships. There are four of Japan's HTV cargo craft. 
there are five of the European Space Agency's automated transfer vehicles, and there's uh, six satellite spa uh, space stations, and also lying there is the Mir space station, which ties into a previous uh, um, secret frequency we did. So there's a lot of spacecrafts down there. There's a lot of space uh, history down there. So there's more that could be said about this, um, but really it, there's just a lot and lot of space debris uh, lying at the bottom of the ocean. Now, that also means there's a lot of hazardous material lying at the bottom of the ocean. It would be amazing to see what you know, this place looks like with all these twisted wreckages that lie four kilometers beneath the waves. So, the other important thing is, it's completely dark down there. Light does not penetrate to, to this depth. It's, an, it's basically what's known as the abyssal zone, or at least it lies at the boundary of the bathyal zone and the abyssal zone. Uh, and temperatures hover between two and four degrees C. So how can we use this in World of Darkness? Well, maybe this is there is a place beneath the oceans which is calling, which is feeding upon these spacecrafts, and this is all part of some world conspiracy to feed some ancient entity there with uh, whatever celestial energies that these spacecrafts pick up. Maybe the spacecrafts are actually normally targeting someone somehow. Uh, whatever's there is waiting for the right accumulation of materials to once more rise again from the bottom of the oceans. Uh, maybe, by as happenstance, all these uh, all these spacecraft that have been plummeting there have brought something with them, such as the Idig, or perhaps something worse, perhaps spirits beyond our world uh, from the outer depth of space. Um, maybe below the oceans uh, there are particular aquatic vampires that have created some strange uh, society, strange city that uses all these spacecrafts. Of course, the uh, Mir space station is there and uh, the Fomora used to use it as, a, uh, as, a, um, as an outpost uh, in the Umber, uh, um so maybe it's after the Mir space station was decommissioned, this uh, uh, this location used by those uh, demonic beings is now beneath the waves. Perhaps they've been drawn there by some uh, harrowing uh, entity of the spirit of the deepest parts of the spirit realm, or maybe this is all some sort of plan uh, by perhaps the virtual adepts who've created some strange underwater. Uh, cybertronic, cyberpunk kind of dystopian uh, location from which they perform their cyber attacks. Uh, yeah, any other ideas, guys? Chris, why is it? Why is it that NASA is sacrificing satellites and space stations to undersea gods in this location? I think it's more important. Why is Russia <laughs> sacrificing? Mm. It's, it's mainly the Russians, from what I'm reading. It's oh, okay. all Russian satellites. Uh, maybe it's to placate... Um, I'm just trying to look at where the location is. I wonder what point... Okay, if you take that area of the world, what point is that directly opposite to on the globe? 
I wonder if it's some sort of rebalancing of energies that's been attempted. Uh, that's probably opposite of something in North America, continental Europe. No, no, I can't. No, be. it's in Europe, I think. Okay. I wonder what it's opposite. I'm just now playing with an idea. Um, I would find it hilarious if it's opposite a location somewhere in Russia. No, it's too close to Russia for that to be the case. I'm thinking, I'm talking, yeah, Western Russia, Europe area. Or maybe, yeah, I don't know, I'd have to have to figure it out. It's going to be something pretty close to Central or Western Europe, I'm thinking. Mm. You know what, it, it might be Sheffield. Yeah, I was going to go with it, it'd be weird if it was Chernobyl. Um, whoa, whoa, that's interesting. Someone can tell us if it's opposite something, or we can work it out in the rest of the show. Anyway, um, any other ideas? Um, oh, actually, I know what it's interesting for. What if it was for Mummy? Uh, Mummy the Cursed. You know, they, they take relics with them into the duet. What if this was some way of, of uh, set up for taking relics which are tied to the very stars? Um, that would be strange. Yeah, definitely interesting. Um, do we have anything for Mage the Ascension? What would the technocracy make of this? Oh, well, obviously, um, it could obviously be some technocratic plan. Uh, you could even easily see the Nefandi being involved in this in some manner. Um, what else can we say about the debris? Wow, this is crazy. So, from the article this is from, the Mir space station left a debris trail which is 30,000 kilometers long and 100 kilometers wide. Um, that's a lot of stuff that's broken up and fallen that part of the ocean. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it's still, uh, still livable down there. No, uh, it'd be interesting what's down there that could have pieced things together and started creating some... Oh, that's a film. It's a really crap one, isn't it? Uh, it's called... Is it not called Virus? Which is some, like, compu alien computer signal which starts creating... Which basically uh, gets onto some, like, ship out in the ocean and starts fabricating itself a body out of machine parts. Um... Yeah, I think it's called Virus, so you could probably play with that idea. Yeah, I can't think of anything for Changeling that fits in very well. Well, let's not worry about it then. I think no. that's a, a good secret frequency right there. And let's move on over to the new World of Darkness. World of Darkness 2.0 Alright guys, we're with the Forsaken 2nd Edition. It's finally here. And Matt, you sounded pretty excited about it. I am. They've made quite a few changes, and I like almost all of them. Uh, mm -hmm. It's turned the book from something that seems okay, but I don't like, into something that I actually do, do would like to run. Quite a few things are now a lot more playable, and or like great concepts but now actually feel like they actually they, they work in, in the game, um, which we'll, we'll hit upon as we go through, pretty much I think as we go through certain parts um, 
progressively through the book. Um, obviously, the book opens up straight away with the auspices, and it also opens up with the tribes. Um, what can we say about them, then, Matt? Auspices, they haven't really changed too much. They did change some things about them, in that all of the auspices now have a hunter's aspect, which, yes. ties, which ties into the Siskarda, which is another thing that we'll have to go over. So, essentially, um, what we've now got with this hunter's aspect is something like, it's almost like they bring forth a, uh, a primordial kind of like, primal, sorry, primal fear in their prey. And it depends upon what, which auspice you're, you're from or what that kind of manifests as in your prey. So it can have an influence in-game on what you're doing. They also all have auspice benefits. Yes. So, so. for instance, the Iraka, who are the stalkers, um, they can impose the hunter's aspect of blissful on their prey. The prey has no idea that anyone is coming for them. He greets the cool night air with a smile, perhaps indulges in chemical or carnal pleasures, and never glances at that shadowy form that's inching closer to his throat. Mm-hmm. And for instance, uh, another good one is like the uh, uh, Rahu, who are obviously the full moon auspice. Essentially, their, their, their benefit tenacious means that uh, for two turns in combat, they ignore any uh, conditions or tilts that hinder them uh, for, within combat. So essentially, they just go, yeah, you, you've, you've, say, chucked dirt in my eyes so I can't see. Well, they ignore that. Because uh, that would be a condition or a tilt that you could use. Um, yeah, you know, it's stuff like that which is kind of makes them more interesting. Auspices are more interesting. But yeah, it makes them more distinct than just this is what gift list you have access yes. to. Yeah, yeah. And then of course, I mean, we said about their uh, their hunter's aspect. Um, so. I'm just trying to find that in the book right now. For which? Uh, just give us an example of a hunter's aspect. I'm trying to think. I, of... I did. That was. Oh, was that the yeah. hunter's aspect? Okay. That was right. the hunter's aspect for the Araka. Uh, the okay. uh, the auspice benefit for the Araka just allows them to just suddenly appear next to their target. Ah, uh, that's it. Yeah. So they're quite they're quite different things, but they they're they're still both useful in different ways. Um, then we've got the, the blood talent, uh, not the blood talents, we've got various tribes, I'm just looking at the blood talents one. Um, they've done the layout of the tribes and a lot of the book quite differently in the sense that they give many different possible myths, like origin myths and myths about uh, the tribe you're a member of or about certain creatures. So they try to give you as many different options rather than one definitive myth that you have to go with so werewolf has been opened up um in that respect with uh with regard to say uh, it's meta plot or whatever you want to call it it's background material um of course one of the main things that always seemed a little kind of hard in play were the tribe um were the tribe uh i want to say pacts uh not pacts um uh vows and um, they've been made a lot more playable. Like, some of them, you were just, like, thinking, I don't know how that works in play. Like, you would just think your character is never going to give up. 
and because of that they're going to die. And that seems now to be brought more into balance and made all made more meaningful in the case of certain other ones. Um, do you have anything more to say about Matt, or you got an example to give on that? Well, I think the one thing that they one thing they changed about the tribes is they made them more. Um, they made them so that they in, they have to interact more. Yes. Like they there are to, there are times when certain tribes aren't going to have the skills in their tool set to deal with what they need to deal with on their Sisker Da, so they need to interact with someone from another tribe. Yeah, I, actually, that's a really good point, because not only the tribes have been made more distinct in, in their what they hunt, and and that, as you say, builds into what skill set a particular tribe has. So they, they feel more like different... They feel like different schools of, of thought that influences the skill set you have, but it doesn't mean that one trumps the other in everything. Right. Um, and they're just a, it's just a better read um, on how to uh, use them. Uh, I'm just trying to find the example of the vowels. Uh, we can always get back to that. Um, what's the next thing you want to bring up then, Matt? Well, we should probably actually dis discuss the Siskarda if we're going to keep bringing mm -hmm. it up. Yeah, sure. Well, the the main thing about the Sisker Da is that they've taken the first part of the litany that the wolf must hunt and actually made it a part of the game in that the Aratha are compelled to hunt and each of the tribes has a different prey mm -hmm. that is yeah. a part of their sacred hunt. In that the Blood Talons hunt other werewolves, specifically the pure. The bone shadows hunt spirits. spirits. And I and also the undead. Because ghosts the, kind of fall mm -hmm. into that. The hunters in darkness, I believe they hunt the hosts. Yes. Um the Iron Masters hunt humans and mm. like corporations, like anything from the human world that would harm their territory, and the Storm Lords hunt the claimed. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's a really interesting addition to the tribes and really makes them quite distinct in in uh as you say, it means they have to work together and then and it actually makes a multi tribe pack seem more plausible and more worthwhile. Whereas before, in the original version of the game, I would say the idea of a multi-tribe pack seemed a bit weird. Well, I don't think they sounded weird, but I think the like inherent um, hostility, even from one pack to another... Mm -hmm. didn't really lend itself to me to figure out how packs formed in the first place. Yeah. Like, how did all of these new, um, newly found werewolves find their first pack without getting murdered by someone? Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, what else have we got in the Oath of the Moon? Um We've got the people do not murder the people. 
which hasn't really changed. It's just the idea that werewolves don't, uh, you know, it's a taboo to kill other werewolves and uh, the wolf-blooded um, or members of their packs, of course. Uh, we also have the, the low honor the high, the high respect the low, which is again about uh, deference uh, based on renown and of wisdom, but also means elders have to defer to the young uh, because of obviously being old means you're weak and you know less capable at hunting. Uh, and then we also have respect your prey, um, which also uh, works out into how um, you know werewolves have to. I guess the it, not not. Um, not be naive or arrogant in their hunt uh, and also again with spirits is that you can't just thoughtlessly lash out at spirits because just killing something is sometimes not the answer of course we have the classic one which is uh, do not eat the flesh of man or wolf because of course that is a breaking point for werewolves that leads them into uh, their blood fury, their karuth uh, and then, of course, the, we have the last bit of this, which is the, um, oh, no, not quite the last bit, the herd must not know, which is the classic, you know, you have to um, stay hidden amongst the humans, because, of course, that comes from the fact that you'll cause humans to go mad, seem werewolves, and also uh, cause humans to hunt you. And, of course, it allows more balance between the mortal world and the spirit world. And the final bit is the Aratha will, shall cleave to the human, which is uh, Aratha mate amongst themselves and humans. Uh, they count humans with, um, among their packs, including the wolf-blooded. So this is a major change because we now have removed from the game the concept of the... Uh, oh, what was it called? I can't remember. I have my uh, hard copy of first edition. Just the ghost the, children. The ghost death babies. Yeah, the ghost death babies. That's all gone. So, um, yeah. I, I think uh, that's a great change, to be perfectly honest, Chris. Uh, because those things only had one good story, which was, oh, oh a female werewolf is impregnated with a ghost death baby. What are you going to yeah. do? That was the only story it really provided, and it was kind of squicky and weird, uh, especially when you got into, uh, as Matt pointed out to me uh, previously, like all the weird ways that they justify a werewolf being forced to come to term with this child. Um, well, because in Blood of the Wolf, they put in a lot of rules about how no, you cannot get rid of the goat. You cannot get rid of this child. If you, like, claw into your stomach and rip out your uterus, it will grow back with the child still in it. Like, it's completely just, no, you don't need that kind of story. Mm. And if even if you do want to run it, you really only want to run it once. Mm. I mean, it would... If you really wanted to run the idea of that kind of like, you know, that ghost child thing. You could do it as some manifestation of a werewolf character becoming too imbalanced towards spirit on the harmony scale. That I get that. That would maybe make sense. And you can still have that story. But now you've got options and you don't have to have that story. And you don't have to have the squickiness that comes with it. 
Right, and the change to the wolf, the the Arathas shall cleave to the human, has become not, you know, always breed with humans, don't breed with Aratha. It's become, you know, keep in touch with your human side. Don't let the hunt consume you. You are mm. still a part, you still need to maintain that part of your being otherwise you'll go, otherwise you'll lose yourself yeah and then of course we have the other other uh, oaths the vows the tribal vows and these as i say they become more they feel more playable so if we go through them we've got the one of the blood talons which is often no surrender you would not accept which means uh, the blood talons leave violent lives, they offer no quarter and seek none. Uh, blood talons stand at the forefront of Aratha conflicts, where bearing the throats means worse than death, it means weakness. So I think within breaking points, this this means they they have to they have to basically they can, they can't accept a surrender. They can offer no surrender you would not accept. So it's, it works out more in like a case of like more honourable, but I think with a breaking point in a new way that the harmony system works, it makes more sense. Well, it's I think it's more along the lines of, you know, don't, don't, you know, go back on a surrender and yeah. like, don't, like, don't, you know, it's like, oh, haha, you surrendered, now we're going to kill you because that's dishonourable and don't, you know, give don't give conditions of surrender that you know they're not going to accept because they're completely ridiculous and yeah. you just want to be justified in killing them um yeah i mean that's it it, it makes more sense um then we have the bone shadows which is pay each spirit in kind uh bone shadows know their path leads them through darkness and death uh, they stalk shadow and the bone shadows know what horrors await them if the Arathir grow weak. So again, I mean, that's the classic, like, you know, you have to respect spirits in the case of you have to offer them respect in the case of, like, where you don't piss off spirits that you shouldn't be pissing off, but at the same time don't accept the infringement of spirits when they should know their place. Uh, which also means you know, bone shadows have to hunt spirits that fall into their purview, which have you know broken the boundaries between flesh and and spirit. Um, the uh, hunters in darkness have let no sacred place in your ter territory be violated. This was always a, a difficult one I found in in concept. So the idea is that. Um, their their oath means that to never let friend or foe violate the hunter's territory unchallenged. Um, I think really that just means you know your your pack or your character um, you know, looks after their territory to the extent that they also once they've allowed a friendly uh, pack or or person to enter it, you kind of just leave it as that. I think. Um, Again, is there anything weird with that one, Matt? I can't remember if there was something weird in first edition with their oath or that made it seem a bit overbearing. Not really. Most of the Hunters in Darkness now, their issue seems to be that they're the tribe who 
try to maintain the creepiness. Like, they try to make their territory seem dark and imposing and just use that to keep people away. Hmm. So that's, like, that's most of what they do now. And then we have the Iron Masters, which is honor your territory in all things. That was always, a, I remember being a bit of a, a bit fluffy. It didn't really seem to make sense in Original Werewolf. So, um, Matt, do you want to go through that one and what you think is the best change to it? Well, I think it works. It, the way I always understood it was that um, to like maintain, like not just maintain it, like the Hunters in Darkness do, but to improve it, to make your territory better, to um, in everything you do try to like think about like this. How is this going to affect where I live? How will this make where I live better? Um, don't you know do something just completely disrespectful like that would harm the people and places where you call home. The other interesting thing, though, with this one is they've also added on the thing, which is the Iron Masters are, must also adapt to their territory. So even they have to recognize when things change, which actually are in their benefit, when normally it may not look like it would help them, they have to be able to recognize when it does and, and embrace that change, but also at the same time recognize when there are changes which are not good and eliminate them. So they're they're very evolutionary in their nature, as in they root out the bad things and have to embrace the good things. And then finally, we have the Stormlords uh, uh, vow, which is allow no one to witness or to tend to your uh, tend to your weakness. So to the Ymir themselves, they have no weakness. Stormlords hold themselves to a higher standard, such that when anyone looks upon the face of the Aratha, they see a fearless wolf. Uh, so, what does this mean in play then, Matt? <laughs> well, I think it's just, you know, don't act cowardly if you're feeling sick you know, be strong in the face of it. Always be the guy at the front of the fight. Don't be the guy who's hiding at the back because your shoulder hurts that day. I mean, I think, like, it's like, it's not, you know... Like, I think this also kind of stems, this is a problem in, um... For the in apocalypse with the silver fangs, like I think they had they had something similar to this, where like they also had like a thing where like becoming old isn't a weakness. Like you become weaker as you get old. That's just the way the world is. It's just you know don't and it's kind of considered gauche for younger. It was considered gauche for younger silver fangs to point out that they were helping them. It's like, haha, I'm tending to your weakness, you're weak, haha, you're breaking the tribal vow by being old. That was just kind of like, no, you don't do that, that's a really dickish thing to do. Okay, so moving 
We've got uh, within the book it talks about the shadow and resonance, the hissle. A lot of this is unchanged uh, and is very similar because a lot of this information that we have about the shadow and so forth um, essentially got distilled down in first edition World of Darkness, we may, uh, New World of Darkness, we may as well call it that now, uh, with Book of, the, uh, Book of Spirits. Uh, and so it's no surprise that this now comes back in uh, with the feeling of being refreshed and how we've already seen some of this uh, via um, the God Machine Chronicles as well, because it talks a little bit about the spirit realms. Um, we also get a bit of information on the the um, the balance between the sun, the wolf, and the moon. Uh, so the sun is also its own spirit uh who has an influence on uh, the shadow. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting little read uh, and just talks, adds to the kind of, explains the dynamic of the shadow. Uh, and then we've got the differences between the different areas of the shadow and a bit on the male jinn who are like the demigods who are kind of quite evil and monstrous. And we then kind of get into the meat of the rules, which is making your character. Well, uh, you you skipped over uh, the shape-shifting. Oh, I did skip over the shape-shifting, but we can talk about with regard to making your character, because obviously uh, when you shape-shift, it's going to modify your stat line. Um, so we've got the five forms, as always. We've got the human, the near-human, the guru war form... Uh, the, um, the kind of uh, be uh, you know big bell mm -hmm. kind of big direwolf sorry um, or shul yeah form and then finally you've got wolf form and these all give you combat modifiers so you can like grapple for free if you make a uh, auto if you hit you get to grapple easily um, various damage modifiers uh, I think the main thing to say about the, with regard to werewolves, though, is considering these forms change your stat line with regard to your health levels, is how quickly now werewolves heal. They heal really rapidly. Well, they heal really rapidly in uh, Gauru form, hmm. to the point of they heal all of their bashing and lethal every turn. Yes. But the thing that I wanted to bring up about regards to the forms is the part about the book that I really like is that since the Sisker Da is the point of being a werewolf, everything in the book is filtered through how does this relate to the Sisker Da? And even the forms themselves relate to that. Mm, yeah, okay. The hmm. human form, anyone trying to find the human in a crowd suffers a penalty to equal to the werewolf's primal urge. The human form is designed to find their prey in the human world. Once they're found, they shift to Dalu, which is the big human form. And the Dalu has a rule called, and I love this, Badass Motherfucker. <laughs> badass Motherfucker allows the Dalu to roll presence plus primal urge to cause anyone in the group that the prey is hiding in to just give to just give them up and run away mm -hmm. so dalu is the form to flush them out then wolf form is the form to chase them down and they and in 
wolf form, you can spend an essence to just preempt anyone's a action and do it before them. So if they're running away, you can spend an essence to say, no, I am now at your feet and biting your ankles. Yeah. And then once you've got them, you've got Urshul, which is the direwolf form, and they are able to apply um, tilts to prey when they attack them, like arm rack, leg rack, or knocked down. And they can just do that without a targeted attack. So they're the form to harry the prey. And then the form to kill them is Ga'uru, which mm -hmm. is ridiculously lethal and very powerful. I would almost say too powerful, but only really when you're doing things like having one Ga'uru fight another Ga'uru, because it just means whoever falls out of Ga'uru form first loses. Mm. First off, those uh, kind of story reasons for uh, ruling or designing the uh, forms in that way is awesome. So great work, Stu Wilson. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I'm kind of curious uh, how exactly Garu form will work in actual play. Because uh, the New World of Darkness, the way it's sort of designed is that uh, you basically have two outcomes or, or uh, two processes for combat. Either someone's going to go down really quick with kind of a first strike or the numbers kind of balance out and it's almost like a war of attrition. And when it comes to Garu form, if you're constantly healing, bashing and lethal, uh, that's really going to just draw out the, uh, the attrition warfare even more, especially because there isn't too much aggravated damage out there. It's not super, super common. So unless someone brings a flamethrower or they're fighting another Garu who's going to have claws. Well, no, claws deal lethal and bite deals lethal. But oh. if you bite and then choose to swallow their flesh, that deals yeah. aggravated damage. But uh. that's a breaking point towards spirit every time you do it. Oh. Oh, interesting. There are all, there are a couple of rights that the uh, blood talons have access to that allow them to deal aggravated on, to deal aggravated when they're doing a siskrida, which because the blood talon siskrida is against other werewolves, but that's still a breaking point towards spirit, and it's technically against against the litany because the people should not harm the people, but that's part of the thing is that the blood talons hunt the pure because someone has to. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. I was going to say the other things that, uh, are with regard to the forms and everything, is we've got a lot more expansive description of um, the different senses that they have uh, that the guru have access to. So the human senses, the wolf senses, and spirit senses. So you know, again, it kind of pushes the idea that you are a werewolf and you have. You, you sense the worlds differently to a human does or a vampire does. So also in New World of Darkness in second edition of Vampire, you know, vampires can hear heartbeats. They, they're more able to smell blood and see in the dark. Uh, in the same way, uh, the Aratha, we've now got a lot more description of how those senses work into how they hunt and how they live. So... The, the other big change from well, the other big change from uh, first edition is the change to how death rage works. Yes. Um, 
the death rage now has okay each werewolf has their own specific triggers and they get to choose which ones they want to have and which part of that trigger will cause you to go into death rage changes depending on where you currently are on your harmony track which is mm -hmm. something we will go into after this i'm sure yeah so like you could so say your werewolf has the blood trigger the passive for that is um like so at what if your if your harmony is balanced the only way that you have to roll for a blood trigger is if you swallow human blood um if you're slightly out of balance you have to roll if you taste human blood and if you are way out of balance, you have to roll whenever you smell human blood. <laughs> um, I kind of like some of the, 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 the triggers for Death Rage when it's the other. So if you're in balance, you are the target of a supernatural power. That's fair enough. You know, vampire comes up to you and does a nightmare dread power on you. You're going to kick off. The common one is you witness a supernatural creature doing something obviously inhuman if you're slightly out of balance with your harmony. And then the passive is you come within 10 yards of a supernatural creature. So if you're too far to the spirit or too far to the flesh, if a supernatural creature walks past you, you just go into death rage. That's pretty mental. And each werewolf... All also has at least has a couple of triggers that all werewolves do. Yeah. If you spend too long in Gauru form, if you take Gauru form outside of combat, if you take damage from silver, or one of the things that Elodoths have is they can just force a werewolf either into mm -hmm. or out of death rage. And of course when you go into death rage, say if you're in human form, over a series of turns you go from Yes. That's the the Wasuim, the soft rage. Yeah. So you, you you slowly shift towards. Well, it's it's not it that. It's kinda... more it's more like it's more like you know it's coming mm. and you have a few turns and you have a little Four while to try and there. to try and react. Like you off like actually stopping it is hard. Um, you can like you. When you're in Wasuim, you have to do one of two things. You either have to attack or move to attack something, or take your turn and tr roll Resolve plus Composure to try and work yourself out of it. If you roll an exceptional success on that, you end your Wasuim. Mm. If you don't manage to do that, then you enter the Basuim, which is the Hard Rage. When you go into a Ratha form, you no longer, you no longer take wound penalties, and... Every other Maratha <laughs> around you, within 10 yards of you, immediately goes into hard rage with you. <laughs> it's nuts. I think the what that's interesting is it's kind of like in Vampire, where you get to, the chance to kind of ride the, um, the frenzy. Mm -hmm. And kind of yep. steer it and control it. So to have kind of the equivalent for Werewolf is quite neat. Um... Yeah, I, I really like the way the triggers work and how that relates to harmony. Uh, of course, you know, there's a lot of things with with uh, Death Rage, which is some players will not like going into Death Rage, as in because you you lose the player the, the the player control and 
sometimes just doing a fade to black is the better thing to do for that scene and then deal with the consequences. So I think that that shows that while you can play, you could play through your character being in death rage and rolling all the insane dice pulls as they tear people apart, the real story is not the tearing the people apart, it's the you wake up without any clothes because you've shredded them and you've got a pile of body parts around you and you're coated in blood. No, uh... That's not a thing anymore. I think they just kind of glossed over that. Now it's just your clothes just magically shift with your ma- clothes magically come back. Do they shift with you automatically? They, they don't. They don't shift with you. It's just they go away. Like the right of pants is just assumed now. Right. Okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but like that's the thing. That was the thing though. Is that um, I believe Aratha form uses down and dirty combat it forces down and dirty combat on whatever you're attacking. Mm. So you're not really rolling much. Things are just dying. Yeah. Um, so I guess it does bring us on to Harmony. So obviously Harmony follows the rules the rules laid out in kind of like in the way that God Machine uh, brought in Integrity. And unlike Integrity and of course Vampire with Humanity, um, the idea is not to have well, I wouldn't even say in the case of vampires the idea is to have a high humanity but where integrity and humanity generally a higher rating is better harmony uh, you actually want to hit the middle point uh, because a high harmony represents your towards the flesh and the low harmony represents that you're more towards the spirit side of your being and there are definite breaking points that shift you one way or the other, such as like you know you don't go into the hissle for a week, or you uh, you refuse to hunt, or you violate the oath of a moon, uh, or you uh, eat processed food or stuff like that. Uh, whereas breaking points towards spirit are things like killing a human or a wolf, or eating human or wolf flesh, uh, staying in the hissle too long, like for a month, or uh, if you have harmony eight or more, that is a breaking point towards. No, it's that's oh, not how it works. What um, at harmony three or lower, it's easier to get breaking points towards flesh, which, yeah, which is it. where you get things like um, eating processed food. Oh yeah, sorry, yeah, I've read the... above above harmony three, a werewolf can do that all they want. Yeah, sorry, that was below where harmony, below harmony three, that's a breaking point towards flesh, which is honestly a good thing because if, if you're at harmony three or lower, that's where the bad things start happening to you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, so like how that works is, um, like, um, at harmony five, you have you are fine. You don't have any Kuruth triggers besides the normal ones like silver and um, being forced into it by an Eladoth, and you have a full 15 minutes in Wasuim to try and, break, and to try and prevent the death rage. Mm-hmm. Um, at 7 and 6, which are towards flesh, um, then you've got a couple, you've got five and, you got 1 and 5 minutes and you have your specific trigger, which is like um, t- swallowing human blood. 9 and 8 towards flesh or that's when you get um, tasting it and you only have 10 seconds and 30 seconds and at 10 you 
get three seconds to fight off a bossy whim, <laughs> and that's where you get your passive trigger. And also, like the way you also get different things, like at Harmony Ten, you cannot enter the spirit world, mm -hmm. and at Harmony Zero, you cannot leave the spirit world. You also, at the lower harmony levels, start getting uh, bands. So much like a spirit, you have particular bands that influence you and harm you, or you know that you you're compelled to uh, conduct yourself in a particular way, uh, just as a spirit has uh, a ban. So um, again, that better reflects that you've become a creature of spirit. Right, and also, depending on whether you are too much spirit or too much flesh, if you're too much flesh, it's harder for you to shapeshift. Yeah. And at, and at 10, like, you have to spend an essence to shapeshift at all. At lower harmony, you have to spend essence to prevent shapeshifting. Mm -hmm. Because your body's, like, if you, ha if you go through a scene and have not shapeshifted, your body will just do it for you. I think that's all pretty cool, the way that Harmony works with um, the idea of being one way or the other with flesh and spirit. Uh, of course, there's um, we could get into the whole thing of like how there's particular uh, anchors and touch, or I would say touchstones, uh, mm -hmm. just as they have in in, where, uh, uh, in Vampire, which you have touchstones of uh, flesh and touchstones of spirit, which help... Uh, maintain your harmony at whatever level you want to try and maintain it at whether you want it to be more towards uh more towards the flesh or more towards the spirit uh so those of course build on the other kind of touchstones that you can have um so i quite like those uh they give a whole list of particular um touchstones and then we get, of course, the merits. There's lots of merits, like living weapon and uh, fortified form. Uh, loads of different general werewolf merits or fighting merits. So we've got parkour. That's a, uh, a particular physical um, set of merits. Um, or tactical shape-shifting, which is insanely good. So this is all about how you make use of changing your body mass and your and how you make use of your speed in different forms to gain bonuses in combat. That's kind of neat. Uh, any other ones that you picked out there, Matt, which you kind of like? Uh, no, I never didn't really pay much attention to the merits when I was reading through it because I tended not to use them when I was playing. Yeah. But I noticed that merits are a more important thing in 2nd edition, World of Darkness. Um, Renown, um, I think the only thing to say about Renown, the one thing that turns about Re Renown at this stage is that the the rank of a werewolf now is ranked from 1 to 5. It? Like well, rank one it's, to no, it's your effective rank when interacting yeah. with spirits. Yeah. The more renown you, the more renown you have, the more powerful a spirit you seem to be. But I think that they help renown changed for the better. Yeah. Because of the way that, because they changed the way that renown interacts with gifts. Indeed. In, yeah. in first edition, in first edition Forsaken, you had access to certain gift lists, and the thing was is that you you advanced through the gift list one through five, and there was at least one gift 
per list that used each type of renown. Yeah. So there was going to there. So odds are there were going to be two or three gifts in that list that were bad for you. This has changed. Mm-hmm. Now, um, what what they have now are gifts. Like you unlock a gift. So you unlocked say the say shadow gaze. It's the first one in the crescent moon gift. Well, no, so. those are those are the those are auspice gifts. Those are different. Oh yeah, so yeah. So let's say the elemental gifts. So you unlock all the elemental gifts, and you are an Araka. So you have the cunning renown. You can mm. unlock the facet of element, the elemental gift list, which is called the Breath of Air, and so you have influence air, and you can use that. You can use that to uh, use influence the same way a spirit would. Now, say you then pick up a dot of um, purity renown. Mm-hmm. Well, when you increase your renown, you can choose to unlock a facet of any gift that you have currently unlocked. So you gain a point of purity renown, you can choose to unlock Tongue of Flame, which lets you use Influence Fire. And if you gain a dot in your Auspice renown, you unlock the next level of gift in your Auspice gift list. Mm -hmm. So, no matter what, you are going to have at least one point of honor one point of renown in any gift that you use and un- and there's an incentive to get more gift lists because then you have more points to put your facets when you increase your renown mm-hmm. and more often than not the way that the gifts work interact well with either your tribe or your auspice like the technology gift for um, the Rahu um, involves just causing the technology to break down, whereas the same gift for um, the, um, I think the cunning renown causes it to just stop working or hinder or ha- actually actively harm its user. Uh, yes, yeah. It, it does seem because I was looking at first edition gift lists and the way that you gained gifts. And it just didn't seem because uh, you you could gain gifts in a non-linear in a non-progressive manner. Like you could learn the three-dot gift uh, in a in a particular section without having to learn the second one or the first one even. Um, and I don't know. There just seems to be some. There seems to be better flexibility in the way that you can learn gifts now. Mm-hmm. And there's also. There's also wolf gifts, which are easier to learn and cost less experience, but mm-hmm. they're also slightly less powerful. Like that's a change that they were talking about during development of this game. That they wanted you to have less gifts, but they wanted the gifts you had to be more powerful and more effective at you actually pulling them off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, overall, I think it, it does look better and. Uh, yeah, like just more flexibility, and as you say, you can you can pick up by by separating things into facets rather than having them as a linear progression. It makes it quite clear that you can you can open up all the gifts and still there is something you can always use. Mm-hmm. 
and that's quite wicked really and of course you can just spend the experience points to learn new facets of a gift you don't have to you know you you're not just limited by learning more renown but learning more renown helps open up more gifts anyway uh-huh. uh of course we've got tons of rights uh which um I don't think there's much more we can say about that, right? They're, they're obviously ritual magic, which is performed by werewolves. Uh, um, there's nothing particularly new here, I would say, other than um, I would hope we'll mostly see uh, more rules on creating those, perhaps in some book, much in the same way as like uh, we've got rules uh, for the creation of different... Um, Blood sorcery that came out uh, for Vampire. Uh, so, not much there to say, I don't think. Fetishes and talons, uh, which are obviously talons are small, smaller, shorter effect uh, or less powerful version of fetishes, um, where you've essentially put a, a, a small piece of a spirit. Uh, into um, into an item, and again, there's a lot of examples there, such as the storm coil, which looks like an odd little lamp of copper or iron, uh, which is able to, which contains the ability of the influence electricity three, and can overload a, a building's power supply, for example. So there's a few examples of of talons and uh, fetishes. An example of fetish is a the rust talon. Bindings, which is a uh, heavy chain manacles covered in a patina of red and brown corrosion effect. Anyone bound by the fetish takes a point of lethal damage and try to use any supernatural power. Uh, and you do a clash of wills roll. Um, so that's kind of cool. Uh, anything else that stands out in that section of character creation? Um, I think we did we pass the bit about. In character creation, uh, before it was uh, with regard to how you build your character and then you build your pack. Oh no, we didn't go over that. Okay, or is that in the next chapter? I was just flicking through. Well, the, here. the next chapter goes over adding the non-wolf, the non-werewolf members yes. to your pack, which is different in that. Um, werewolf packs are now no longer just the five in them. You start. You can bring other people into your pack, and which include wolf-blooded, which are different than what they were in first edition, mm -hmm. and even other supernatural creatures or humans who are quote unquote in the know. Yes. Uh, anyone, anyone who can help you in your in your da. So essentially, they're really putting forward the idea that your pack is not just your characters, it is the wolf-blooded uh, who support them, uh, and perhaps are better characters to roleplay at certain points within the story, because obviously the life of a werewolf is quite a, a brutal thing, and sometimes it means that it doesn't quite mesh with certain aspects of the setting. Uh, this, and then obviously you have human characters, as you can either represent as full characters using the World of Darkness rules, or you can represent as just like a collection of skills representing how they they aid your pack in, in certain uh, aspects of their their hunt. Um, 
And again, by also allowing other members of the pack to be other supernatural creatures, it really builds upon, um, again, the crossover nature of New Order Darkness. Um, I think it's it's always been quite open uh, werewolf that the idea that sometimes a pack of a werewolf pack has to go off and do something at the other end of the the country, maybe, or in another part of the city. And yet they've got something important to protect or they're going to be gone for a long time and they may know, they may be friends of and they're a, they're a member of a pack is, say, a particular vampire who's like, yeah, sure, you know, I'll look, we'll look after your territory. I know I know some friends. We'll, we'll get them in. Everything will be fine. And, you know, when we need some help, you guys will turn up and tear apart the rival vampires for us. So, you know, that that's still in there, which is really good. I, I, I like how werewolves aren't immediately hating on the vampires um, and how that's still there with all the other different supernatural creatures we now have in World of Darkness. Because um, you, you can easily see, like, say, a bone shadow and, say, a sin eater getting on really well. Because, again, it's that whole thing of, like, you know, a bone shadow would also respect how a sin eater keeps a balance between the land of the living and the land of the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how I would put a mummy in the group. That would be kind of crazy, but yeah. Uh, of course, we've got all the rules, because now second edition books have all the core rules in there. And then we get into the rules on spirits unless i've missed anything you wanted to pick up there matt before no um no not really and spirits um are mostly the same as they were in in first in first edition um the major differences are they included specific rules on how people become ridden and claimed yes so which works like a social combat yeah, uh, it's kind of like um, a social combat with all the conditions and tilts, so that a sp- and we I think we've already seen this in um, we've seen a similar table, a flowchart in the God Machine Chronicles with how a ghost interacts and then manifests, and we see the same thing with spirits where they can they reach across the gauntlet, they manifest. Or they reach and then they possess, and then obviously there's a series of possessions until they they claim a person. So you have this flowchart of of going from a, a a particular action causing a condition, causing a manifestation, and whether you need to have certain powers that have the reaching ability to do so. So it's it's very much um, there is a there is a particular kind of like routine to follow to, to play these out if you need to play them out in that particular way and given that as part of the game you're making not just werewolf characters you're making wolf-blooded and human characters who are members of the pack that's kind of useful when potentially one of those human characters could become possessed by a spirit um, there's obviously a lot of different powers for spirits uh, they're numina and of course using the World of, World of Darkness uh, God Machine Chronicles, you get a whole load of other Numina. Um, nothing particularly jumps out as being like, oh wow, that Numina is 
like completely scary and overpowered or or just terrifying and that leads us into the different types of prey so of course we still have the pure tribes we have the fire touched the ivory claws and the predator kings um I didn't spot anything they really changed there with the pure tribes. Uh, I'm sure we'll get a book that obviously recasts the pure tribes with the new rule system. Uh, yeah. Obviously, I think the one which will be the most interesting to look out for with changes, though, will be the uh, the ivory claw who are in who are obsessed with purity of lineage now because of course we have werewolves now being able to interbreed. And the changes to wolf-blooded, because wolf-blooded now is not just something that occurs because you inherit it. You can become wolf-blooded if you're driven to lunacy by seeing that, a werewolf. I love that. I love that rule. It's if you um, get a dramatic failure on your on your role to resist lunacy, you become wolf-blooded. I really like that. It basically shows that you're touched by the madness of the moon and become you, closer you to the go, You go so crazy, you make Luna notice you. Congratulations. Yeah. So how that all ties in with the Ivory Claws is going to be quite interesting, I think. Whether, you know, they how they, they rate one lot of wolf-blooded over another and one lot of werewolves over another, depending upon how far back their lineage of they go. Um, okay. Uh, we also have some example characters that we then get rules of spirits. Spirits, you know, as typical. The book tells you go by um, predators, and of course, go by book of spirits. It has a whole list of spirits. Yeah, the rules aren't going to be quite the same anymore, but there are plenty of ideas in those books to inspire you or spirits in werewolf and you just need to rework the rules for the most part most of the attributes and so forth will be the same you'll just have to reference slightly different numina um yeah, that's that's what i'll say about that the hosts um i'm not too sure if we've got some better information on why the Azlus, that's the spider host and why the 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 Beshalu, the rat hosts are doing what they're doing um but we've now obviously there's again then they haven't really changed whatsoever they're the horrible creatures that infest you and slowly become these uh half human half rat or half spider creatures before they finally become some hideous mon gigantic monster as they gather together more shards of their the plague king or the uh the spinner hag uh of course we've got humans they represent a particular threat to werewolves and then we've got the spirit ridden uh, again the the idea hasn't changed we've just got better rules on on how that process of becoming spirit ridden and becoming claimed occurs uh and then we get on to perhaps the biggest addition to second edition or at least uh since the biggest addition to werewolf since um the night horrors book for werewolf uh, the Forsaken, which is um, the Idigam. So we get, again, the same information that the far back in time, uh, the Idigam were imprisoned on the moon. Uh, because Father Wolf could not kill them. He could yeah. only... The only way he could stop them was to imprison them on the moon. And some of the Idigam uh, instead hid 
deep beneath the Earth, uh, and they are known as the Earthbound. So we have two different uh, types of Idigum, the Moon Banished and the Earthbound. And of course, the Moon Banished have only returned to Earth since humans set foot on the Moon. And so obviously the Idigum uh, essentially, you know, uh, you know, hitched a ride on various spacecraft that have been to the moon and back. What can we say about the Idigum? Uh There are many ideas of what they are. They could represent, represent concepts that no longer exist. They could represent concepts that have yet to exist. They could even represent humanity itself, because humans don't have a reflection in the spirit world. Or maybe the Idigum are that thing. Uh, the Idigum are really like proper body horror level of weirdness. We're talking, you know, like the thing. They're constantly shifting and, and changing their shape until, of course, the Idigum go through a process where they become coalesced. So that basically means the, the Idigum uh, take on, finally take on a particular ban and particular banes and and particular influences, though these banes and bands are very obscure and strange and normally depend upon the location and the conditions and the things around them when they become coalesced. Uh, Deidigam can also uh, can also forfeit that, that being coalesced and become back to being what is known as formless so that they can once more be shifting in form and nature and take on new bands and new banes. And in fact, Idigum, when they're formless, uh, they they have constantly shifting banes and bands, which is makes them incredibly hard to fight and difficult to destroy. The um, So they're quite cool. I really like the Idigum and I like what they've built upon there. Uh, the main theme is that some, for whatever reason, the Idigum are, are searching for the answer to some obscure question, which, if they finally find the answer to that, it may mean the Idigum becomes fully formed, and a new concept or new creature or new thing within the real world, within the world of the flesh, will come into being. So, they're very alien, and the potential for them could be world-shattering uh, in that sense. Uh, they have many, when they become coalesced, they have access to this numerous powers that make Numina look like like you're being tickled. Some of these are like uh, are horrible uh, and allow them to manipulate ghosts or manipulate, uh, create servants who are kind of, Strange, so they can make claimed, or they can make werewolf. They can touch a werewolf and and uh, make them their servants. Uh, they've got various dread powers, which like cra well, crazed evolution, which is they can warp creatures in the real world. Um, there's a lot of different potential for them here. One thing you didn't go over is the reason why they want to. Why would they would want to go back and forth um, between coalesced and not? Coalescing makes them more powerful, it gives them influences over the spirit world, and it allows them to start using their their essence shaping and dread powers. Of course, yes. But form, formless Idigim are basically impossible to kill, but they are also very limited in what they can do. 
coalesced idiom are dangerous and are much more dangerous, but they have banes and can be beaten down and re-imprisoned. Yeah, they are. They the idiom the way they're set up are a very tricky opponent. Um, I would say tricky on the same level as like say the uh, the gentry from from Fey, because again they have very particular uh, they have particular pledges and bans and banes that you have to find out to defeat them. And then we get a whole list of example idigam, some of which I really like. Um, Matt, you said you like the deceived the deceiver loon who basically appears as one of the the loons. The... No, the uh, the one who think who the one who acts like um, Father Wolf. Oh right, okay, cool. Um, I like um, I really like the one which is um, let me just flick to it the the heavenly fire so it's a it's an idiom that was on the moon that uh, grabbed onto and wanted to understand and it kind of got touched by it the the moat of an alien star that had gone supernova and so this spirit is kind of very um, is almost like cosmic energy out of control and is a star waiting to be born. Um, I really like that one. It has a lot of potential uh, there. It kind of has the feeling of, say, the, the Quishillim from, from Prometheum, but like gone totally out of control. Uh, so I really like that. And the idea it also has like um, this this cult of humans that think it's some sort of god of the stars. Uh, I really like that. Any other ones that you really like, Matt? No, not really. I didn't get to read. I didn't really read much about the uh, Itagam. I spent more attention reading about how the change, the changes to um, the Forsaken themselves and what they hunt, because the Itagam are they're kind of the focus of the Chronicles themselves. Like, if you're doing an Itagam game, it's completely different than anything else you're doing in Forsaken. Yeah, because that's the point. Like, if as we said with the tribes, they all hunt a particular thing, whether it's other werewolves, spirits, humans, uh, the claimed, and the Idigam are outside of all of that. So the, none of the tribes are set up to deal with the Idigam on their own. And it's also interesting how even the pure tribes don't even know how to deal with the Idigam. They actually think they're some like wonderful alien monstrous spirits that they can use to their own ends. And they're so totally wrong on on what the Idigam are and often get completely slaughtered for that naivety. Uh, the other thing we get in the book is we get a number of sample hunting grounds. So these are locations for chronicles. And the one that took my interest uh, is the one which is set in Bristol in the United Kingdom. And it has a very kind of Innsmouth kind of, you know, uh, the Idigam has elements of Cthulhu in there and the spirits and the, uh, the claimed that come up onto the shores are very fishy and tentacly, and that's kind of fun. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's there's one that's one setting which is Basra in Iraq. 
Um, and there's another one which is Holmes County, Ohio. Um, so there's a few different, there's quite a few different uh, sample locations there. Uh, did you look at, so Matt, did you look at any of the sample locations? See anything that stuck out there? Oh, there's a Tokyo one. That looks interesting. No, I didn't. I've not read the Tokyo one. Um, that looks cool. There's a little sidebar about Tengu. So Tengu are bird demons in Japanese folklore. Uh, so it talks about them as being some sort of spirit. Um, nice. Uh, and then, finally, what do we get? I think we get the storyteller section on how to run uh, werewolf, and there's particular tilts and conditions for um, for werewolf that are in the appendix. Is there anything else that you want to bring up towards the end of this, then, Matt? Um, well, two things. One thing that I noticed is that um, there are the Sisker Da condition, which is what the werewolves go under when they. Initiated Skrda has different benefits depending on which tribe is leading it mm -hmm. to better help them in their um, to better help them in their hunts. Like the Iron Masters um, can choose which lunacy condition gets inflicted on someone who get who you know fails their role when they see a werewolf. Um, these storm lords get allow them to s just sense if someone is ridden, urged, or claimed. Mm. Um, the hunters in darkness let them see how the dark, how the gauntlet has been affected in their in their vicinity, so they can see if it's been strengthened by the spiders or chewed through by the rats. The bone shadows allow them to attack spirits with their teeth and claws, and the blood talons, which doesn't seem as good, just lets them see renowned brands. Mm, okay. The and of course there's one appendix. I was going to say with, uh, in the appendix there's also the there's the appendix totally devoted to wolf blooded. Um, yes. Which is wicked. Correct. Yeah, because now that wolf blooded aren't just the guys that werewolves need to to sire children. Yeah. They have their own complete rules, and they're now like the ghouls for vampires in that they have depending on whether they are closer to Father Wolf or Mother Moon, they get different powers. Mm. If they're closer to the wolf, they get spirit powers, like they act as locuses, or they can sense spirits, or they, when they fall asleep, they, their um, id manifests as a spectral form to go out and fulfill their vices for them or if they're closer to the moon they have physical things like they can go into death rage and they assume dalu form when they do so or quite possibly my favorite one is um second skin the wolf blooded was born with the pelt of a wolf not attached to them but a living skin that rushed from her mother's womb at the same time at the same moment it breathes, in a way, it has a heartbeat, and is clearly alive. It doesn't think, but it does feel. And the wolf-blooded has a sense for its feelings. They need to feed the pelt, and they need to wear it once a week. 
if seven days have passed when they haven't, they must need a resolve plus composure roll whenever they're in a stressful situation, or they have to run back and put it on. But the benefit to that is, when they put it on, they assume wolf form. Hmm. That's nuts. There's another one that, um... Uh... Like, they transform during the full moon, or they have, um a layer of wolf skin underneath their human skin mm. that gives them one slash one armor at all times but it's vulgar as hell and anyone who sees it has to make a lunacy roll <laughs> they're cool they're really cool um, mm -hmm. they're so much more interesting than what first edition wolf-blooded were and I think that's the benefit of the game so that not everyone has to play as you could, you know, many more people play uh, werewolf in the sense that not everyone even has to be a werewolf, and there are benefits to not playing one of the Aratha and playing one of the wolf-blooded. Um, one thing more specifically, um, becoming a werewolf does make you lose your wolf-blooded merit, but becoming any other kind of supernatural does not. Weird. So yes, you can be a mage who is his own locus. <laughs> that has so many repercussions. I would, I would most probably immediately house rule that any wolf blooded that becomes a mage is tied to the supernal realm of, uh, of um, spirit and uh, and life. So, so to the primal uh, wild, because it's the only thing that makes sense. Um, cool. I think that's pretty much Werewolf Second Edition. There is a lot in there, as uh -huh. always. There's a lot of good stuff. And it makes Werewolf... Oh, it just makes it so much... It looks... Like, I enjoyed Werewolf the Forsaken, and now I think I'm going to enjoy running it even more when I get around to running it. I already have an idea for a Chronicle in my head, because I never got to complete the Chronicle I ran. So, you know, it wouldn't take me much to get started and start running it. Cool. All right. So, yeah, that's uh, Werewolf 2nd Edition right there. And, uh, guys, I think we should keep this marathon episode going. Uh, and talk about Beast. <laughs> I told you it was going to take four hours. Yeah, you might so, be right. I guess okay. we skip on to the next segment then. Indeed. So let's move on to a uh, topic of highbrow storytelling. Topics of highbrow storytelling. Matt, Chris, it's uh, it's been an emotional week for Beast. Mm -hmm. It's been a lot of highs, a lot of lows. Actually, I should, probably should have like reversed that. There was a bunch of lows. Now it's getting. Get, we got some highs. Some very specific highs. Some very specific highs. So let's tackle this. Um, just to give people a little bit of background, uh, the Beast Kickstarter is currently ongoing, and uh, there's uh, been some controversy surrounding it. You know, there's a lot of cool ideas, but there's also ideas that uh, people have have looked at and they don't agree with. Uh, they don't like uh, some of the direction of the game. So, as such, you know, there's been some back and forth between, you know, the community, the developers, and uh, currently, um, uh, Beast is actually going to be going through uh, a slight revision. So, some things are going to be uh, taken out, replaced, reworded specifically, and it's it's going to be interesting. And uh, I personally think it's it's only to the benefit of the game. 
uh, you know, it's really good that, uh, you know, they're, they're taking another look and they're going to uh, just fine tune it from here uh, to give us the best beast experience. I agree. I mean, I was not happy with the preview before, but I think that what Matt put out yesterday sounds like a game that I would want to play. Yeah, I would I would have to agree with that because from I haven't had what with all the moving and everything, I've not had a chance to read the original um Kickstarter preview. But what I read of the revised introduction, it sounds really great. Um, and it, it seems like a playable game without being... Uh, and it addresses some of the issues that have been brought up by other people. But should we... Where do we start with this? Do we want to start with what Beast attempted to deliver and what problems it ran into and why that and how that's now been addressed i think that's probably the best way to do it okay. yeah sure so beast the original draft version that we got portrays beasts as these uh nightmarish creatures that uh feed off of the fears of humanity Specifically, they need to sate this uh, soul that they've been bonded with. Uh, and beasts were previously human. Um, there's been a lot of... With the original text, there was a lot of debate about that. But I think it's it's mostly clear that they were human and then they became beasts. It's The way that it's worded is that um, you were basically human, but you were always going to be a beast... Right. You you find your primordial soul and then become one with it. Indeed. And uh, after you become this beast, uh, you effectively need to put fear into humanity to sate your own hunger. Uh, you do this in many different ways by uh, hoarding things or um, abusing others. And uh, this allows you to keep your your uh feral self under control and um also grants you uh powers and the ability to survive because in particular um there's a sort of super ego reaction from uh the mass of humanity uh in the form of heroes which are individuals that will hunt down beasts and um attempt to uh, just destroy them outright. Uh, so beasts have these uh, uh, different hungers, but they don't need to uh, specifically feed them uh, just by spreading fear, actually. Uh, there's a, a way for them to almost latch on to the uh, uh, feeding process of other uh, monster supernatural types, such as vampires, werewolves, etc. And by working with these other societies, they can uh, kind of find a slight workaround uh, with their their uh, hunger issue. And Beast, as it, as it was originally portrayed, um, basically focused on these two aspects, either uh, fending off heroes or uh, working with other supernatural types uh, to kind of, you know, forward your existence. 
And those were the, the two main things that it did. Um, and, and that's yeah, also yeah. where some people had a lot of problems. Right, right, because right. So there wasn't too to... much for you to do. Yeah, uh, yeah, Matt, why don't you take over? Okay. The, the one thing that was kind of a problem with the game is that when it comes to dealing with other supernatural creatures, it does this thing called kinship, which is the idea that all supernatural creatures are descended from the Dark Mother, which is the mythological, the mythological creature in Beast from which all beasts descend. That um, vampires, werewolves, changelings, Prometheans, sin eaters, mummies, fetches, and inhuman spirits are just lesser versions of beasts. And that there are other things that are fundamentally human, like mages, psychics, slashers, and hunters, that are fundamentally human, but have touched enough of the beast to still be considered kin. Specifically, the only creatures that are playable in the world of darkness that are not affected by beast rules are demons. Mm. Mm. And there, the other thing is that um, beasts can just sense other supernatural creatures um, and that all supernatural creatures have at least a good um opinion of them unless the beast specifically does something to make them hate them so you so all supernatural creatures love beasts which i will note is kind of a cool uh inversion of disquiet from promethean right but it does kind of seem rather odd because what beasts do seems somewhat at odds with what werewolves do because it does say that beasts, since they feed on fear and suffering and need to inflict it on others, are gigantic fountains of very negative resonances that spirits can feed off of. Like, if a beast somehow manages to get into the spirit, the shadow, then basically every spirit in a 10-mile radius is going to come and feed on them. Yeah, yeah. So beasts are actually... Again, a, a very interesting inversion. You're going to hear that a lot uh, when talking about uh, what's what's presented in Bruce, Beast of the Primordial. Um, so we just heard about uh, Werewolf, the Forsaken Second Edition, and how harmony works, where you really want to kind of stay in the middle. You don't want to go too far to either the uh, the spirit side or the uh, the human side. And Beast is actually the opposite. So you have this uh, sort of power stat it's called... Like a, it's a, like a, a combination of a power stat and and your supernatural resistance and your morality it's a lot of it's a lot of weird things yeah and it's known as uh satiety so the way this works is either you're going to be you can either be you know very hungry uh which drives your your other soul known as the horror in the uh, updated version um to uh cause you to hunt and feed or you could be uh, very full because you've been uh, maintaining uh, and, and uh, uh, hunting and sating yourself. Uh, and those are really the two good situations where you get the most powers and benefit. But there's also this middle called lukewarm. 
And if you're in that state where you're feeding, but only just enough to survive, you're actually the most vulnerable. That's when uh, heroes can affect you with the most um, uh, weaknesses, and you have the least access to your powers. So it's a it's a very uh, tenuous rope that a, a beast has to walk. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely uh, kind of counter to how a werewolf is presented, which... Um, might work, it might not. Uh, there's some interesting notes in there, just as a side tangent, that uh, the primordial dream, which is kind of the other world, the other plane uh, presented in uh, Beast the Primordial, uh, is very, very easy for werewolves to navigate, which is uh, kind of a neat little crossover idea. Well, it's it's closest to the spirit realm from that, but it's more like the collective unconscious of humanity like the realm of dreams to which all humans go to. Well, yeah, but that that's that's because it drives it it's essentially the Temenos which is in mage and that ties in with the idea of the dream time uh from like, you know, native uh you know, aboriginal ideas. So, I think there's a lot of parallels that the reason why werewolves can navigate the primordial dream is because if you look at it from a mage perspective, the primordial dream and the spirit realm are two halves of the fallen reflection of the supernal realm of you know spirit and life so i think there's things you can grab there that kind of make why that kind of makes sense so yeah kind of bringing it back and you know the kinship concept i think is okay uh, I think it's definitely something we can work with. It, it does seem a little odd that uh, other supernatural creatures instantly like them. Um, but if they kind of worked it in somehow to be uh, uh, more similar to the, the updated uh, Predator's Taint, um, I can't remember the name of it, in, in, uh, in Blood and Smoke in Vampire's second edition, uh, oh, that may be better yeah. just to uh, uh, present some rules for the uh, some initial reactions uh, between other supernatural types and the beasts themselves. Uh, that can well, be pretty cool. Beasts do have powers with their kinships. Like, they can right. um, pretend to be a creature of that type. Like they And, like, to, for all effects, like, they will just be treated like they were a werewolf or like they were a vampire. And if they have a high enough satiety, they will superficially appear to be that type. And they can spend willpower points to give them extra dice. And they can gain satiety off of watching them hunt and feed. And another thing that is kind of, like, another reason why I'm not really sure why changelings in particular would like the beasts is they can travel from the primordial pathways to any realm and they can force their way into any um, supernatural space. Hmm. Oh, yeah, that's super dangerous. See, I, I, I don't... You see, with that, that's kind of weird, because I don't know how comfortable I am with the idea that beasts can penetrate straight into a one of the gentry's realms in Arcadia. I'm happy enough with beasts penetrating into the hedge, because the hedge is, is kind of that that membrane between worlds and also you can go into the hedge in order to enter dreams through hedge gateways but i'm not too sure about 
penetrating into Arcadia. That just seems a bit too... It kind of removes the... It, it's, it's kind of like... I'm not too comfortable with the idea of removing... Being able to remove a problem for changelings, which is a problem and inherent to their nature and to the game and what they're fleeing from. Right. And, like, the fact that be what beasts are and what they do is dangerously close to what the gentry do to the changelings. Yeah, because they're feeding on things. I mean, technically, I mean, changelings are also kind of the same in that they uh, feed on, uh, you know, emotions. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not too comfortable with that, really, for changelings. It doesn't seem right. I would, if as a changeling, I'd be more committed to killing uh, a beast because they seem very much like some of the, the um. The fairy tale creatures that can be spawned in the hedge. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that's one of the. Uh... Uh, one aspect of uh, the beast's uh, kind of existence. And the other one is, of course, the heroes. Um, so, Matt, Matt, let's talk about the heroes as they currently stand, unedited. Okay. Um, one of the things that the game does is it informs opinions. Like, it says beasts are, quote-unquote, the good guys that by inflicting fear on people, they are accomplishing something good, and therefore heroes are the bad guys. But the problem with heroes is that for a hero to rise up, they have to have been touched by a beast. A beast has to do something to them which causes them to lose integrity. And a hero cannot become a hero unless their integrity is for or below. So these are very screwed up individuals and the beasts just kind of make them sort of worse and the thing is is it says that heroes are bad and wrong but like they do sort of have a point there are beasts that do very very terrible things and they probably should be killed and heroes are probably the people to do that killing because they are empowered to do so but the text just says no they're wrong they're bad you should hate heroes which seems really weird because uh, I think the main thing we ever get from World of Darkness games is that there's never a black and white in that. You know, vampires are horrible creatures, but also the way you can play vampires is that you can have vampire characters who are actually realize that sometimes the worst elements out there are the very humans that they predate upon. And also some of the hunters out there are horrible people because they go to ridiculous lengths, like murderous lengths, in order to target a vampire. So who is more the monster, the hunter or the vampire? At least the vampire is maybe following to its... is you know, is, is sometimes loses control to the inherent beast within them. A hunter is taking mindful actions to commit murder and torture in order to chase and torment a vampire. And you can say much the same way about other, you know, other antagonists in other games. That's it's never a true black and black and white. Whereas the impression I got from what I read is that there is a very black and white between heroes and 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 the beasts. 
it's well, it's very um I, I I wouldn't say black and white, but I would say that the way it's presented, heroes are straight up they're just bad. That's yeah. that's the only way to get around it. So just to use some examples, um directly from the text, uh heroes are are just very single minded, they're very focused on their objective, they don't care if they're hurting other people, um or or abusing other people to get at the beast. And that's how they kind of try to uh, show you that that the heroes are bad and in this sort of narrative that they're creating, the beast is can be a, a protagonist. But the problem is the reason where this this really all starts to break down with the uh, you know what we currently have for heroes, the unedited uh, version I, I should specify again, is that the heroes are the ones protecting humanity from these abusive creatures. Right. And another problem with the way they do it is that they seem so hell-bent on making you dislike heroes, they make some really weird parallels. Like, there is a line in the book here that says, that is that heroes are men's right activists, they are internet trolls, they are the people who start arguments just to start arguments because they just don't understand that beasts are good things, and they cannot understand that beasts are good things because they are heroes and they just don't do that. And heroes blame the beasts, and it's like, no, they aren't here. Like they, It's a very bad way of doing it, because if your antagonists are sympathetic, that's a good thing. You shouldn't w want to bend the system in such a way to make your antagonists universally evil, because that doesn't really cause conflict in the game. It's, they're just people there to kill. Yeah, yeah. It's... It's a very. It, it comes across as very. I just. I just don't feel comfortable with that because, you know, it then by making the whole thing that the heroes are male right activists by making that parallel, what's that say then about beasts? Because also, at, there's the whole thing of what the beast nature is. Is that we ha we have to be accepting of the bad things that beasts do and what that is a reflection of in social commentary. It's, it's very mixed up and messed up what's in here. Right. And for the most part, beasts are, I mean, heroes are interesting. Some of them are, some of them are characterized better than others and they get some interesting powers and their mechanics are interesting. But then you have a character that, um, where is a fedora is a tall skinny man in a trench coat and his character quote is never fear milady i've come to kill this foul beast you see when you read that to me i was like what the hell have they based this on have they based it on fraser crane <laughs> or have they based the character on uh, on uh, dresden files harry dresden which is just or or, or jim butcher really um it's a it's a weird one and the other example characters are um, a housewife who came home and saw, and one day just her son was different, and she told her husband, her husband was like, okay, no, I'm calling the cops, and she fled, and she's been hunting down her son all this time, and she's just thoroughly disturbed, really screwed up, but that's a more sympathetic character. 
there's another character in here that is a it's she's a teenaged girl who a beast um tried to steal something from her it's not really specified what and she followed the beast to its lair which is in the primordial dream um and she managed to kill the beast but then his lair collapsed and trapped her in the primordial dream so her body is wasting away on earth while she's trapped dreaming and she is forced to wander the dream killing beasts to sustain her soul and try and get back to her body like that is an amazing character and the, there are people on the internet who are trying to figure out ways why she's a bad person because the text says that she's a bad person hmm. and they should stop they should really stop with that because that was a cool character which was that what was her name like amanda no melanie melanie that melanie. was it yeah that was a that was a really cool one and that's that's the sort of like inspiration we're kind of looking for when it comes to heroes like hey that's that's a cool concept um and something you really you can really work with because you know the the example i've used multiple times when when talking to you guys is that you know when you look at the hero beast dichotomy and maybe compare it to say like the beauty and the beast which is a pretty common story that a lot of people know it's it's not so much that gaston is a bad guy it's that the beast is a good guy and that's kind of what you need to be looking at you know gaston is is not a very friendly person he really just wants to save this girl so that he can then marry her um but the beast you know despite his his wrongful acts is actually in fact you know a good good person a protagonist um yeah given i think i was was kind of missing with the original version of this yeah well i think the one thing i said is that gaston like he quote-unquote did a right thing in trying to save a girl but his motives were not his motives weren't the ones that he said he had it's he Mm. wanted to kill the beast so he could get the girl but he was telling everybody else oh no like he's no kidnapped this girl and does things which is true he did kidnap bell it's like the people were going to rise up and fight the beast it's just he was doing it for the wrong reasons Mm. precisely precisely yeah, I think that's that's a phenomenal uh, way to put it, Matt. I was going to say it's like in when you take the Gaston character, a hero like that would be a perfectly fine character. Yeah, against a totally different protagonist, and when I say protagonist, a different monster that is actually a monster, like is bad. Um, yeah, right, and like that's the thing is that. We haven't really gone over the beast splats, but heroes are affected by what beast created them. Okay. Like, um, a hero created by a tyrant becomes a tyrant. A hero created by a collector, like, tries to claim the things that they want from the beasts they kill, and they become obsessed with material wealth. Um, predator heroes just want to kill, um, and... They want to, and they know that, but they want to make sure that the things they kill are beasts, but they are mm. still driven to murder. Um, nemesis heroes try and kill beasts out of a sense of right and wrong, and Ravager heroes just want to break down everything about heroes, and about beasts, and it becomes so distrusting because they believe that everybody is trying to break them down. Hmm. Indeed, 
Indeed. So there you go. You've got the, uh, the heroes and the uh, various other supernatural types. And that's really the two things that, that beasts do. They, they sort of exist and interact with these, these two groups. And um, that's actually kind of another, another weakness that we noticed with the original version was that uh, there wasn't really too much for beasts to do amongst each other. Um, and really, it didn't seem like there was too much variety um, other than what we see in other World of Darkness games, uh, besides, you know, having to fight the heroes off uh, at intermittent points. Um, so that seems to be another thing that they're going to be uh, fixing up in the, uh, in the updated version. Um, do you guys think we should talk about the uh, updated version more? Is there something else, we, any other yeah, points we well, need to make? Yeah, I think there's some good points in the update. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. Thing is, I think the updated version cha changed the way that the beasts are framed, but the version as it was presented shows alar an alarming lack of insight in some ways into how it's perceived. And it, there's certain there's certain characters where there's certain points in the book where it seems like, you know, being edgy and transgressive at the table is what you're supposed to do, and you're supposed to be making the other people uncomfortable in the ways you feed and the things your character does. Okay. Sure. So uh, the updated version, uh, yeah, it does reframe things. It rewrites uh, significant portions of the uh, of the introduction. That's all we've seen right now is really the uh, kind of intro chapter. But overall, I think it's I think it's definitely an improvement. It's uh, as as uh, both Matt and Chris did say, uh, it's a version that they would actually like to play now, and I would agree with that. Um, I, I'd be much more interested in exploring some of the uh, the new ideas and concepts that were presented. Uh, specifically, one of the things that they bring forward, which was definitely in the original text, but kind of fell to the wayside, was the sort of mythic resonance of the beast themselves. So, now the beast is uh, focused on using fear, revulsion, uh, to teach lessons to humanity. Which probably sounds a little weird, but what it's kind of getting back to is the fact that uh, these different stories, horror stories about beasts... Uh, passed down throughout the ages were really meant to to teach lessons to uh, to people to humanity, and that's mm. what the beast now embodies. Um, and it does seem rather br brutal that some beasts may do this uh, in very abusive ways. Not all of them, though, uh, but but some do, which kind of just harkens back to older times, the uh, the atavisms that uh, the the book keeps alluding to. Um, that being, you know, ancient times, ancient practices, as opposed to the powers of the beast, which are also known as atavisms. Uh, and how uh, society used to be just much more brutal. And uh, because of that, that's how laws and justice was passed down. And uh, stories as well um, were just uh, that much more shocking. Yeah, that that builds into the whole. I think that's the the right way to look at the when we talk about beasts. Beasts are teaching uh, particular lessons to humanity. You, you've got to think of it in a, a more mythic sense rather than uh, kind of uh, like the problem is like you know, do we have to accept that like torture or bullying or trolling or all those horrible things teach us something? No, not really. They just teach us that people are horrible. Beasts right. should be very primal 
and and mythic in the lesson that is taught and so that means ultimately the the pain and destruction and death and whatever a beast does has to have some sort of has to feel like it has mythic resonance so it's not just like obviously bad you know evil beasts that have lost their way are going to be horrible and just date on on people that don't deserve it but it ha it has to feel like it's more than that um and it also i think by doing that it has to be so that the beasts aren't patting themselves on the back for doing a good job it has to feel like they that they know there is a greater good but they hate the reason that it, how it has to be brought into being and they hate how hunters uh, so not hunters heroes as as a as an entity has also sort of that that cycle has lost its way because obviously the new introduction builds upon uh, what heroes should be they should be wise men that teach communities to learn from these the horrible things that happen so they can so the community becomes stronger and better in whatever ways more more perhaps more spiritually balanced right like uh, the, yeah, the, the example I'd use is how Little Red Riding Hood the lesson was you know stay on the path don't talk to strangers but like over time it's become you know twisted it's got been twisted into you know don't worry the woodsman will come and cut the beast open and put rocks in his stomach and toss him in the river yeah yeah like you're no longer learning a lesson it's just you know a feel good story where the hero saves the day and we venerate the hero not the lesson mhm mm mm. and one thing that they changed that i do like is that beasts no beasts see themselves as monstrous mm. where like they understand that they are not good people and they are not doing good things in the previous version there was not really a sense that they were doing something bad it's just oh no we are the primordial horror we can do this stuff and it's okay it's it's the same way as saying it, it's it's a very it, it it's a better version we've got now of presenting a character type that it, that comes to accept what they are right. and their true nature and not hiding from it but also accepting that the world the world may have to change a lot to the point where the monster is no longer a monster if that makes well, sense where then where they're no longer viewed as a monster it's almost like they accept their it, it's really hard if you want to try and do a social commentary in here as well but well, I, I, I think, think the thing is that you in there it's there are people who are trying to ascribe social commentary to it and mm. ascribing marginalized groups to the beast which yeah. i think in a situation where you have heroes who hunt the beasts that's not really a good path to take yeah but i think that the the main difference the one thing that was different in the previous version to this one which is something that i will go over is that in the previous version like i said the beasts are born and they find their souls and that is, they become what they were born to be. In this one, beasts aren't really born, but they're not really made. Like, 
Um, the idea is that some people have a stronger link to the primordial dream than other people. They still have this link to the realm where these lessons exist, that people still remember that these things are, and that occasionally another beast will find these dreamers in the dream and be like, okay, I can make you one of us and you can, you know, help us, help us fix this, fix this world, or I can just leave you alone. They make that choice to become a beast. Hmm. And if they accept it, their soul is devoured and replaced with the horror, which yeah. is what makes them into the beasts. Which uh, is an awesome concept. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's definitely good. Um, I was going to look at one of the this. I was going to say one of the things that in the inspirational media uh, media that I found kind of funny when it, they brought it up, but it does make sense. Um, is Tucker and Dale versus Evil, which is a hilarious film, but is also a great way of presenting heroes. Um, the thing I was actually going to say about heroes is also you get the feeling that heroes are part of the cycle of the beast, as in they're kind of like a, a self-regulating part of the, the myth, as in they keep beasts in check that go beyond what a beast should be doing. Well, I think the issue with heroes and the thing that the beasts take issue with is that the monstrous beasts that create heroes, but heroes are incapable of telling the difference between the monstrous beasts and the ones who are just trying to do their job. Yeah. Another awesome concept. And also that heroes have, as we said, have lost their, their sense of place where they've become the focus, not the lesson. And that was a problem with um, the previous version, is they put a lot of focus on subverting the narrative that the beast must become the protagonist and strike down the hero to become the you know main character of the cosmic story but it really didn't come off that well it just seemed like oh no no he heroes are the bad guys i'm the good guy and i'm going to break the story and yay now i'm the protagonist everything's good again hooray like there was no real meaning to it besides just this kind of railing against, you know, no, no, screw you, I'm the hero now. Hmm. Yeah, think, well, think... it, yeah, it was kind of like, the, it, it's, it was really weird because it was about inhuman beings doing inhuman things, and that was supposed to be the, the protagonist. And, you know, just on a personal level, I really want to play Lawful Evil or Chaotic Evil D&D <laughs> games. So, well, you know, the, I think the, the, the thing is... is... The previous version would have worked if beasts owned what they were. Like, they weren't doing it for any greater purpose. They weren't doing it for any greater reason. They were a monster, and their end goal was to achieve a hypothesis beyond the story and become something even worse. Like, hmm. that would be a decent game. But this kind of, like, no, no, we want family, we want friends, we want the, the mean old heroes to stop killing us, just comes off really weird when you have some of the heroes' um, preferred feeding methods, like torturing people or kidnapping them and starving them until their family forgets them. And it's like, they release them and it's like, yay, now they love their kid again after I've tortured them for a week. Hmm. It's like, that does, that's just really tonally dissonant with, every, with some of the other things the book is saying. 
It will be interesting to yeah. see how these changes uh, we see in, in later parts of the book. So far, we only have the revised introduction. I've also been looking at comments on the Kickstarter page, on the Kickstarter um, update uh, for this, where this uh, the link to the revised introduction is. And obviously, some people really latched onto the game and latched onto the problematic aspects of the game in a positive way, as in those are the bits they liked. And they say, well, well, you're mis-selling things. And, you know, Rich Thomas has basically said, no, we're not mis-selling things. We're actually reinforcing what we wanted the game to be in the first place. And what you've latched onto is is something that we didn't want to be in the game anyway. So we're not mis-selling. We're re we're re reinforcing what it reframing reframing it. So you know, I'm basically like, well, if people latched onto it because it was a latched onto things that were problematic and saw those things as good things in the game, well, tough shit. You know, you can always <laughs> if if you know if you yeah. if you don't like it, you don't have to pledge for it. You can take back your pledge and bugger off and pledge something else if you want. Who cares? Mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, are much happier about pledging for this now. Oh so yeah, that's always yeah. good. I mean, originally yeah. I pledged because I thought, oh, sorry, it'll be it'll be good antagonists anyway for any game because it has that crossover element. Now I see that I can play a game of what I what I feel like this is 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 a game of modern of modern mythic monsters in the sense that you can tell. You could you can basically reframe classic mor- uh, mythic morality tales in the modern day. In some respects, this is maybe a bit more like the Dark Shadow, the the World of Darkness mirror, Dark Reflection to Scion, in that sense, hmm. where you're again playing mythic characters. Uh-huh. Nice, cool. So. Uh... You know, we've talked about the original, uh, we've talked about some of the updates that are coming out and uh, how we feel about it, but let's, you know, real briefly for people uh, that uh, haven't checked out Beast yet, let's talk about uh, the Beasts themselves, like character creation, the splats, and uh, maybe a few of their powers as well, just to uh, give people a feel. Because I don't think the stuff is going to be changing much, and you know what, it seems pretty good as it is, so uh, I think it'd be pretty cool to talk about. They mentioned that... The mechanics probably will not be changing because this is what people have been playtesting for months, and to change them at this point would be too much of an investment. And the fact that the mechanics work, and most of the themes work, they just need to be clarified. Um, And what they're changing are how the beasts are presented, how the relationship between beasts and heroes are presented, and giving the beasts something to do. So let's just jump into it. So the uh, the sort of X splat, you know, the uh, kind of core archetypal splat for um, uh, the beasts is their family, which uh, sort of defines their their general um, classification. You know, the kind of uh, s- spirits that uh, uh, inspire the horror uh, that has joined them. And uh, real briefly. Um, of course, uh, the first one is the Anakim, or the Giants, uh, who are a family that uh, embodies the fear of hopelessness. So these are very uh, judgmental figures that tower above everyone else, very commanding, and uh, sort of inspire fear and uh, belittle others. Um, 
and they're pretty awesome, pretty judgmental, uh, and and kind of a just an interesting archetype to play with. Um, and actually, now that I'm thinking about this, there's something just so totally awesome in each of these write-ups for the different splats, and that's the uh, the stories section, which gives you like four or five different origin stories for uh, where the giants came from or, or where some of them may have come from, uh, which are just so awesome because they tie in just all these different mythologies, um, which again, I mentioned in the update is something that they, they brought to the forefront and is just like a really cool and uh, a fun element uh, to explore in this game. Uh, so for example, with the giants, you know, talks about uh, giants from uh, East Asia uh, of course, uh, it discusses um, the different frost giants and fire giants of Norse mythology and just gives you so many story hooks and, and one little uh, you know, handful of paragraphs that can uh, just inspire many stories and different characters. And uh, it's pretty rad. Uh, of course, there is also the uh, Eshmaki, the lurkers. Uh, and these guys embody uh, a fear of destruction. Um, so usually the, uh, sort of nightmares and dreams that they inspire, uh, are of an individual that is separated from everyone else, very alone. Um, uh, another is the Makara or Leviathans. Uh, these are basically sea monsters, uh, and give fears of, of drowning and, uh, fear of the depths of the sea. Uh, these guys are pretty rad and have, you know, as you'd assume, very uh, abyssal or watery-themed uh, layers. And uh, they inspire dreams um, of just being stranded out in the water and drowning or just being overwhelmed and uh, uh, claustrophobia and the like. Uh, others are the Nemtaru, the Gorgons, uh, who embody a fear of revulsion. Um, they're usually uh fairly hideous uh if they reveal themselves not not reveal themselves but if their atavisms uh uh begin to come into play and these guys are pretty neat uh as showing you know reflections of the uh, ugliness of humanity and uh the fears that that embodies and then finally there are the uh ugalu or the raptors uh the fear they embody a fear of exposure uh, you know, being alone without tools and the inability to survive. Um, so pretty cool stuff. They also represent, like, the metaphorically being exposed, like being caught naked, um, having your secrets revealed, um, being lost in the middle of nowhere. Um, they, they, they're supposed to be, like... Um, the great flying beasts of myth and legend, like the rocks or phoenixes, things like that. Mm -hmm. Cool. And uh, Matt, do you want to talk about the hungers a little bit? Sure. Um, there's the hunger for power, the tyrants. Um, they are the ones who lord their power over others, um, try and let them know that the beast, the beast is in charge, and that is how they feed. When someone else feels powerless before them, then there is the the hunger for hoard, the collectors. Um, they are the one like they are like the classic dragon sitting atop their pile of gold. Um, they feed by 
gathering or collecting something that someone else wants. There's the hunger for prey, the predators, the ones who um, feed by hunting and more often than not killing. Um, the, then there's the hunger for punishment, the nemeses. Um, they feed by punishing the guilty, making them know that their crimes are known and that they are being, like, that someone knows what they have done, that they deserve punishment. And then there's the hunger for ruin, the ravagers. Um, they feed off of destruction, and that can be metaphorical destruction as well, like the destruction of safety, removing the sense that you are okay. Like there's a sample, there's a sample ravager who sneaks into someone's house, breaks their mirror, and carves "You are not safe" into the wall. But the thing that I noticed is that the hungers really overlap. Like tyrants and nemeses, tyrants and nemeses kind of fit together. Um, predators and ravagers do as well. There's not really much distinction between what the different hungers do, and having a different hunger really doesn't give you any kind of benefit. There's no real mechanical change from having one hunger or another. Mm. Yeah, they're not very uh, strong Y-splat. Uh, you know, usually we see, if you look at Vampire uh, and some other games, it's it, usually the Y-splat is more of a political or philosophical orientation. Uh, and here, it's it's more of a just a primal uh, basic need uh, to define your character, which is still uh, perfectly okay. Um, it does help differentiate uh, some characters from each other and kind of gives them a uh, uh, an angle for which to interact with life and uh, their existence. Cool. Uh, so, of course, every beast has a lair, which is a, uh, a location, a safe haven, if you will, that exists in the primordial dream. Um, layers are interesting, uh, and and originally, I kind of wanted them to only exist in the real world. I was a little confused about why the primordial dream uh, should even be in the game. But after reading through it, I think it's actually a pretty neat idea. Um, layers are cool because they just give you a lot of uh, ability to just play around and create whatever unique... Uh, uh, base of operations you want for your beast um, putting in different rooms traps and uh, uh, defining various abilities for your character so matt you read more into the mechanics than i did so what are some of the cool traits that uh, layers can give you well the thing about layers is layer is the the, the measure of how powerful you add like it's the blood potency um, the higher mm. the layer your layer goes, the stronger you get, and the more things and the more chambers you can add to your layer, and the more traits you can add to your layer. Now, um, the way chambers work are like you have the heart, which is where your your soul or your horror sleeps when you are not in your layer, um, and that is where your be where your where the heart of your your heart of your lair, where it sits, and if someone can travel there and kill your soul, you will die. But then you have other chambers, which are rooms that have some sort of significance to you. And you can expand your lair um, whenever, 
um, you successfully feed on someone and you force them to lose integrity and you shatter their soul enough that you can take those shattered bits and forge them into a new room in the primordial dream that matches the, the room where you currently are. Like that sense of fear and terror imprints itself on the room and then you can take that room and imprint it in the primordial dream. Hmm. And then each layer has a certain number of traits. Like these are things like poorly lit or um, small or corrosive, on fire, um, oppressive, thing, um, traits that would be assigned to a scene or a location. And what beasts can do is, if they are in a location that has those traits, they can then bring their lair more closely into the, into the world. So say you are a beast that has the corrosive trait and the dimly lit trait in your lair, and you are in a poorly lit warehouse with flickering lights, you can cause it to just suddenly start raining acid in the in there. Like that is the primor that's the primary way that beasts can do combat is by manipulating the traits of a scene and trying to make it closer to their lair so that they can gain the advantage. Hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty awesome and unique thing that we haven't seen before in the world of darkness. So, definitely a, a really cool, uh, cool mechanic. Another thing that they can do is, if a location is um, close enough, is similar enough to one of the chambers in their lair, they can cause their lair to overlay on top of reality, and anyone who tries to leave that room will instead become lost bodily in the primordial dream. <laughs> and then, like, the beast can just take it away and then leave them trapped there in the dream for their soul to feast upon. Yep. Cool. Um, so, Matt, do you just want to go through some of the other mechanics? You know, uh, maybe feeding a little bit, then move on to atavisms? Sure. The thing about uh, Seiji is um, that, like like you said, is that um, both low and high are good. Being in the middle is okay, but it leaves you open to being to having a anathema placed upon you by a hero, which is just something something that heroes can do. And um, if you get afflicted with anathema it does something to you, like it forces you to act in a certain way, or it gives you a weakness to a certain weapon, or it gives you a vulnerability to something. Like, all of the tales where, like, say, the chink in Smog's hide that could be pierced by an arrow, that would be an anathema. And the way that um, Beast puts it is that they aren't things that existed, they aren't things that heroes find, they are things that heroes create, but since heroes are so lost in the narrative, they are things they think they find. Mm. And so that's middle, that's medium satiety, and beasts don't like to be there. The souls don't like to be there because the souls either want to be hungry and hunting or full and happy. They don't want to be content. Mm. 
Mm. Now, at low satiety, um, you have different traits than at high satiety, and that's where we get the satiety conditions. Mm. Um, at, at from uh, seven to nine, you are gorged. Um, your soul is lounging happily in the primordial dream. You're more vulnerable to persuasion and suggestion because your soul isn't, you know, forcing you to pay attention. But um, since your soul is so distracted, you have more control over the nightmares that you can do that you can inflict on people. And so, and that's the thing we'll get into later. That nightmares are more powerful when you are full, and atavisms are more powerful than when you're hungry. Um, at low satiety, you are starving, um, where it, it makes it harder for you to open up primordial pathways to travel back to your lair, to travel to other places through the primordial dream. But you, um, your atavisms are stronger. And while you are actually, and if you actually manage to get into your lair, um, every you add your lair rating to all of your all of your dice rolls. Um, but then the problem is, if you completely run out of satiety or completely fill up with your, your satiety, you are in trouble. At zero satiety, you become ravenous. You can no longer feed in the normal way. Um, the only way you can feed is by killing a hero or having your soul go off on its own to inflict nightmares on people or by feeding with a uh, satiety potential of eight or more, which is really hard to pull off. And even if you do, you only regain one point. Also, becoming ravenous is the only way to shake off an anathema. So if a hero places one on you, the only way to do it is to go down into the depths of hunger and claw your way back out. Hmm. If you completely fill up, you become slumbering because your soul no longer cares about anything. It is completely full and it is going to sleep and you lose access to all of your powers. Hmm. And if you travel back to your lair, you are no longer immune to your own traits. So if your lair is raining acid, which deals an aggravated damage a turn, you have to figure out a way to survive that to get back to your lair to wake up your soul. So you can get really powerful lair traits, but that also makes it more dangerous. That makes being completely full more dangerous. Yeah, no, it's really great use of the uh, conditions mechanic, and uh, overall pretty neat. Mm -hmm. It's also going to make uh, condition cards super super helpful uh, when running Beast. Mm -hmm. And like say, and feeding is there's a it's a more complicated mechanic. It mostly depends on how difficult the hunt is, how long you've been planning it, like. If it's something that you've spent an entire chronicle putting together, you can roll a bunch of dice towards... It gives you more dice 
towards the total amount you could get to feed with. The concern that I have with this system is, is that um, there is really no reason you would want to do that because you can't choose not to gain points. If you get too much, then you will go straight into slumbering, hmm. Hmm. which is really dangerous. Like, if you do an exceptional success, it will stop at nine. But if you get if you roll four points and you're at six, then you are basically screwed. So it's really something you'd only want to do when you're starving. Cool. Yeah, that's all really, really lots of information there on it. Hmm. Now, as far as atavisms and nightmares, those things I mentioned before, um, atavisms are physical things you do. And atavisms are always on. They get more powerful when you're at low satiety, and you can spend a point in satiety to make them even stronger. Um, but since you're normally at low health, I mean, you're normally at low satiety anyway, that's probably not a good thing to do. But, um, like, one of the ones that I, like, so the Makara, who are the sea monsters, have an alien allure, so they can make themselves like sirens or mermaids and lure people in. And uh, when they get more hungry, um, it, it becomes more effective, and they can force open doors more quickly in social combat but if they fail they go straight to hostile if there's and one of the ones that I really like is the Eshmaki, the stalkers have one that's dragon fire which just lets them breathe fire hmm. yep super effective mm-hmm and if they're at low satiety, it turns into a fire machine gun. <laughs> Nightmares are um, more like... Nightmares are cool in their own way, in that what you do is you lock eyes with someone and say something, and then either immediately or the next time they fall asleep then they will be afflicted by the nightmare. And all of them do different things, and they last for a scene, I believe, unless you, unless certain conditions are met. And they get more powerful if you have high satiety, and they get even stronger if you spend a satiety. And some of them have good combat traits. Um, some of them are... There's one called Behold My True Form, which basically allows you to inflict damage in combat by yelling at people, hmm. which is, again, pretty fun. Um, but then there's other ones that are kind of disturbing. Like, there's one called um, Everything You Do Is Worthless. You're an imposter and everyone can tell. You aren't prepared for this. The only reason you're even here is because of blind luck and happenstance. It's only a matter of time before something comes along and you can't fake it anymore. And there's another one that's, um, you deserve this, which inflicts the guilty condition on you, which makes it so that you must, you feel compelled to confess to everything bad you have ever done, and it doesn't go away for the rest of the scene. 
and there's one called You Are Meat, which just straight up removes their soul. Shit. Just so that could be that's really nasty against a mage because if you remove their soul, then they um they can't really use magic as easily. Uh, yeah, that's pretty mean. And hmm. if they spend a satiety, it's permanent. Uh, yeah, that would be Whoa. really bad to a mage. <laughs> that would be really, really bad to a mage. That would also be really cruel to a Promethean. Mm -hmm. who's, just, who, well, who's only just become human. Oh, yeah, that would be terrible. <laughs> right, and, like, and that's... And, I mean, I'm not sure, did we want to... That's all the mechanics that I've got planned out, so I guess, did we want to get into, like, the last thing about the more... The, the part about feeding and using nightmares that kind of made a lot of people uncomfortable. Matt, hit me with it. <laughs> yeah, go for it. All right. Um, there is a sequence in the book describing how, like, an in-character example of a character feeding. And it involves, um, like, a person whose their character is a kindly old lady who like basically feeds off of the perpetual fear of the children in her neighborhood and sort of protects them but also punishes the people who do things you know too bad who do things completely out of you know completely out of character or just really bad and the example is she finds a teenager who stole candy from kids on Halloween so she breaks into their house, into the kid's house, poisons some candy on his table, not enough to be fatal, but enough to make them very ill, then lurks upstairs until he comes home and starts to throw up. Then she grabs a plastic bag and starts smothering him in his own vomit, then inflicts the you deserve this nightmare on him, and then decides that, you know, since it's dark in there, she's able to inflict her lair on there and turn the area into a new chamber, making sure that he never has a good night's sleep again. Fuck. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, trigger warning. Um, whoops. Well, that's kind of the thing. There are a lot of... That's just one example. There are worse ones. There's another... There's an example of a pair of Makara that, um a collector and a nemesis. The collector gathers things and puts them at the bottom of a lake and then goes on social media and tells everybody that there's treasure at the bottom of the lake and then has her boyfriend kills them when they show up to collect the treasure because obviously they're avaricious. Hmm. There's another one where like there are some examples of more benign methods of feeding, but most of them involve like really screwed up things that I really wouldn't want a normal player character to be doing. Yeah. Okay. I don't really have any way to follow that up. Um, so uh, I think I think in closing, overall, um, I'm glad <laughs> yeah. that uh, you know Onyx Path has kind of listened to uh, what people are saying. They're gonna take another look at uh, the text overall and uh, you know work out some of the kinks uh, i think that's a bright choice to make and uh yeah should be good and i'm excited that uh they're releasing some of the updated text as the kickstarter goes on so uh any last remarks uh about beast um no i think matt's covered a, a lot of it and 
yeah, I, we can only hope we get to see some more of the revised chapters that cover some of these things. I know there's already some discussion about uh, homecoming versus devouring on the uh, comments on Kickstarter. Uh, yeah, we'll see how that evolves. Um, yeah. Like I said, if the example text is a sign of the direction they're going to be going going in in the future, and they stay their course, Beast will probably be a game that I'd want to play. I'm I'm hopeful, but I'm also reserved considering the text that we've seen so far hmm. that was released in the public preview. Like they ha they have a hill to climb. I think it's entirely within their capability to do it, but I'm not going to say that it's okay yet. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Cool. All right. So that's it for Beast, and uh, let's move on to the close of the show. And this has been quite the long episode. So of course we are Darker Days Radio. You can check us out uh, at our website at darker-days.org. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, uh, send us an email. Uh, I haven't checked our email in like ages. I should probably do that. There's probably a bunch <laughs> of things sitting in there. You can email us at darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. Now, Chris, if people want to uh, get in contact with us on social media, where are we? Uh, we're on Twitter, at Darker Days Radio. Uh, we are on uh, Facebook. We have a Facebook page. We are on Google+, and we have a Google Plus community that now has 300 members. So feel free to drop by and have some discussion there. Uh, what else do we have stuff that's really active? There's some stuff we don't really use too much I should look at again, but those are the main places to come to. Uh, yeah. Um, I am thinking, Mike, because I've been saying this a few times and now I actually have my copy with me, um, that I really need to sort out doing this competition for a copy. Oh, of that's right. That's right. I had. I have a bunch of things to give out. Yeah. I have a bunch of classic World of Darkness things, and we need to do a classic World of Darkness competition. So yeah. I was trying to think of a good thing, a good, a good, uh, a good contest, and I've got it. I've got it, everyone. Okay, okay. Here's the contest, uh, and there's going to be multiple winners. We're going to, you know, uh, as we have done previously, uh, just talk about the answers on the show, and then uh, randomly determine uh, a series of winners for uh, some classic World of Darkness books. And here is the answer you uh, uh, need to give. And uh, we'll put, uh, we recommend sending us an email at uh, darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. Uh, but you can also get in contact with us, with us via uh, Facebook through a message or also on Google+. But here, here's the contest. What supernatural type from either Classic World of Darkness or New World of Darkness do you think Matt is? <laughs> what? Yeah, what what's Matt? I and mean, what is he? Is he Promethean? I don't know. Is he Fomori? Maybe he's a black spiral dancer. Only your answers will tell us what he is. So uh, I guess we'll announce the uh, winners of the contest maybe in two episodes' time, and then uh, we'll send out the prizes. Does that sound uh, good to everyone? That sounds good. What are they actually going to win? I have a near pristine copy of Midnight Circus to give away. Very good. Well, I've got... I actually last summer bought a bunch of books uh, just for this contest. So I've got uh, Midnight Circus. I've got Sorcerer. I've got an extra copy of World of Darkness Mafia, which is actually a really <laughs> phenomenal source book. Awesome. And a copy of Time of Judgment. So lots of stuff to give out. 
I also checked our drive-through RPG account. We have a significant amount of uh, credit there to give away at least a PDF as well. So we might be able to give away a new World of Darkness PDF, maybe? No way, Chris. This is classic World of Darkness only. We've had two uh, new World of Darkness contests so far. we got oh, yeah, we we to yeah. balance the scales a little bit. We did give away a uh, Strix Chronicle edition, didn't we? We gave out that. Uh, we gave out the uh, yeah, okay. the two damage copies I had of uh, Geist and uh, God Machine Chronicles. And actually, didn't we give out Mummy as well? Uh, I don't remember. No, I, I, don't, I don't know. Oh, no, no. But yeah, okay, let's keep it classic. Roger that. Keep it classic and keep it classy. So that's it for this episode of Darker Days Radio. Thanks for sticking with us for the uh, lengthy episode. But uh, I think we explored a lot of really interesting topics and uh, got some good information out there. So with that, uh, Matt, Chris, thank you very much for joining me. Chig, wherever you are out there, I'm sure you're. Uh, I'm sure you're proud of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that, uh, good night. Yeah. See you guys.